Hello everybody, welcome to Atwood Unleashed 104 with Stephen Knight. And tonight we have got five guests across the four and a quarter hour show. First two hours on YouTube, hours three and four on Patreon with our banned content. And if you get a chance, link is down there. All of Stephen's links are down there as well. As usual, we describe the latest breaking news from 5.45 to 6. Philip Schofield is going to be a big part of this again. We've had Elton John come out and back him up. We've had Schofield come out of the shadows today. There's a new story there. Also, we had the breaking news about Andrew Tate yesterday, and I did a live stream last night about why he has incriminated himself by doing these interviews, and he's become his own worst enemy. The submersible has gone missing, exploring the Titanic. That's the big one here. We'll have, we'll have a little chat about that in a minute. And the first hour from 6 to 7 is going to be Matthew Steeples. Then Stephen has got 7 o'clock. Yeah, I'll be speaking to best-selling author Rizwan Verk. He'll be dropping by to speak about his book, The Simulation Hypothesis. So he's a renowned MIT computer scientist and Silicon Valley video game designer. He'll be, he'll be explaining one of the most daring and consequential theories of our time, drawing from research and concepts from computer science, AI, video games, quantum physics, and referencing both speculative fiction and ancient Eastern spiritual text. Uh, Verk will show how all of these traditions come together to point to the idea that we may be inside a simulated reality like the Matrix. Uh, Elon Musk once said, there's a one in a billion chance we are not living in a simulation. So maybe tonight we will find out uh, a little bit more about our lives. Red pill or blue pill time, I think. Uh, And then from 7.30 to 8, I'll be speaking to Psychic, Christopher Robinson. Uh, He's known as the Premonition Man. Uh, Christopher believes he can see into the future and has appeared in many mainstream media publications over the years. Uh, On tonight's show, we'll be discussing the Jill Dando and Madeleine McCann cases. And then you've got the first guest on Patreon. I have. It's just me, me, me. Uh, in this section tonight, unfortunately, for you guys. Uh, I'll be speaking to uh, Michael Tellinger. Uh, Michael is also an explorer of internationally acclaimed author uh, of numerous books and dozens of lectures available on YouTube. Michael has become an authority on the ancient vanished civilizations of Southern Africa, the mysterious origins of humankind, resonance, synaptics, and the power of sound. Uh, His research includes a diverse field of subjects such as archaeology, mythology, human origins, religions, origins of money, spirituality, breakthrough science, and consciousness. A lot going on there with Michael. It's just making my head explode uh, Mm. listening to that. All right, last guest of the night is Dr. Becky Spellman, who is a top psychologist in London. She has a YouTube channel. She thinks she's got like 60,000, 70,000 subs. And I was on her channel many years ago. It got about a quarter of a million views. But she does great videos about narcissism and all kinds of other behaviors. She uses psychodynamic therapy, CBT, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, dialectical behavior therapy, and mindfulness to treat a range of difficulties with a particular interest in borderline personality disorder. (laughs) She specializes in looking at narcissistic behaviors And tonight, she's going to be looking at current news stories revolving around Philip Schofield and Meghan Markle, 
where she will be giving her clinical opinion on their behavior patterns. <laughs> Can't wait for that. <laughs> you hear what the, uh, the Spotify gentleman had to say about Harry and Meghan. Oh, yeah. Called him the, uh, the grifters, didn't he? Jeez. It's about time someone yeah. from Spotify called them out. And these are people who hired them, so it's not it's not some disgruntled friend or something. This is people who have worked directly with them and paid them a lot of money. So what do you think, Stephen, about Andrew Tate getting charged with the R word and human transportation? We'll, we'll, we'll call the charges for now. Um, what, what do you think about him getting charged and facing, you know, 10, 20 possible years in Romanian prison? I think I'd feel far more comfortable opining on this if it was part of the UK jurisdiction in terms of the, the justice system, rather. I think I'd be on safer ground uh, looking at the charges with how the Romanian justice system works. I'm not really clued up on it. A lot of corruption. Uh, you know, it's difficult to get information. I don't particularly like him either. I don't trust him. I think there is something about certain men who self-style themselves as gurus who have a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of means, uh, and I don't think that always translates into virtuous or ethical outcomes. So I'm going to, this is a long-winded way, Sean, of saying I have no idea. I'm going to gonna wait to see what evidence is presented and how that comes out in court and how he defends himself. Yeah, so, you know, when you get arrested, the first thing your lawyer says is don't do any interviews or speak to anyone about your case. He's gone on the rampage in recent weeks. I'm wondering, because I did a video last night and I was pondering his motivation because he doesn't need the followers, he doesn't need the money. I'm wondering if he knows he's going to get sent down and it's his swan song. Feels rather preemptive, doesn't it? Feels like a, uh, a sort of cat in a cage mentality. Uh, and also, it seems like somebody who can't, he can't possibly pass up an opportunity to be the centre of attention for an hour <laughs> or so as well. So I just think, you know, lucrative offers on the BBC and, and various other places with, with big audiences are just too good of an opportunity for him to turn to turn up. And obviously, you know, I, I'm speculating here, but if he is guilty of the things he's been charged with, the alleged, these alleged crimes, it makes sense that he'd want to get out there and set the groundwork of his uh, his excuses and innocence or to seeds of doubt amongst his incredibly devoted fan base indeed and ego is the enemy and ego has brought down many a successful business person and we're watching succession right now i love succession have you finished it <laughs> no so no plot spoilers i've just finished season three that alien, that alien abduction at the start of season four is just so left field. I'm, honestly, them writers always keep you guessing. But it ties into this news story now that we've got the billionaire and the other wealthy individuals trapped in the submarine, doesn't it? Yeah, that's taken up all our attention, isn't it? It's such a strange... I mean, is it $250,000 a go to get down there or something like that, did I read? Yeah. Just... It is a very rich run out of ideas. Life isn't providing me with many thrills kind of activity, isn't it? And it's it's quite experimental in a lot of ways. I, I certainly wouldn't trust it. I think if I was a billionaire, I'd, I'd think I've probably got too much to live for to get in a tin can and go to the depths of the ocean, which we know almost you know less about than some of the areas of space. So it's not looking good for them, is it? We have to be honest. It's not, unless ask the viewers. Viewers, put a one in the live chat if you think they are not going to get rescued in the submarine 
put a two in the live chat if you think at the last minute, just before they're about to run out of uh like some Hollywood movie script, these guys are going to get saved. And it is an absolute tragedy if they do not get saved. I don't want to make light of it. You know, the family members are obviously going to be devastated. And imagine if there's a billionaire down there, he's probably got every for hire special ops. His family probably got every for hire special ops team available. Navy SEALs, divers, um, whatever, uh, working 24-7 to try and find those people right now. Because apparently there were some noises, weren't there, today from the ocean? Yeah, so I think I think perhaps some Canadian airplanes, I'm not sure how the technology works, but they can they can fly over and, you know, I think they use in coordination with some sort of boys to detect sounds, and they were hearing sort of banging noises every 30 minutes or so. Now, I suppose if you're in charge of this vessel and you're you're you know well versed uh, in this area of expertise you might be of the knowledge that the, your only hope to be found now is to make vibrations from inside this vessel so it could well be a coordinated effort to get the attention you know making noise every half an hour or so but i just i mean even if they find this vessel which would be miracle one if it is still in the depths of the ocean i'm not sure what else they can do apart from claim they've located I, I don't see how they can possibly get this back to the surface especially in the uh in the time frame allegedly left which it, when i read earlier was something like 24 hours left in terms of oxygen so oh uh, it's not looking good there seems to be a huge lack of empathy based solely on the fact that these people are mega rich and i, I think that's a bit of a bit of a failure of compassion from people to understand these are uh, people's loved ones uh you know as well I can only imagine the conspiracy theories that are going to come about in the following days. Looks like we've got Matthew Steeples ready to come in. So, Stephen, we will see you around seven. See you in an hour. Cheers, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Matthew, how's it going, Hello. my friend? Well, I, I'm sitting outside. I hope it's not. I hope you can hear me. I can hear you loud and clear and crisp. Well, as long as no burglar alarms go off or car alarms or to derange, I'm, it's nice to be set outside for a change. We've been inundated with people asking, where the hell is Matthew? It's been almost a week, I think. And the stories that you cover then, Schofield, McCann, Markle, etc. Which one would you like to start with today, Matthew? Oh, well, I don't know. Where would you like to start? You know, the bell tolls right now outside. The church bell is tolling. I can hear it. Um, you know, um, uh, I've had messages from a lady. Um, she's got several different names. D. Lisa. She would like a mention. So I've, I've, I've obliged. So hello, D. Lisa. I don't know what, which, which name she prefers. But is D. Lisa a magneteer by any chance? No, no. She's one of your, your super fans. Um, no, I've been with Paula the Poker this afternoon, who also deserves a mention. She's a lovely local lady who used to run a local pub, and she's a poker player. <laughs> she's a Texas Hold'em champion, and uh, I'd like to give her a mention. But no, the, Mag the Magnet legend Legends are all—they've all been rooting for you this week. They—they they love you, and they—they they love you to come back. So we we'll have to begin our little tour down here. Um, I get to speak to the man about the tour, but that's how we go. But, you know, uh, so I don't know where we begin, but Philip Schofield is obviously the, the key topic they're most interested in. 
Yeah, and viewers, you have demanded it, and we are now in talks for the tour. It looks like it is going to proceed. And based upon our conversation, Matthew, I think you want to start with Sir Elton John calls reaction to Philip Schofield's affair totally homophobic, saying if it was a straight guy in a fling with a young woman, it wouldn't even make the papers. Well, it's very, on... ni- it's very nice of Sir Elton to stick his little oar in, given he doesn't really live in Britain. Um, you know, I've had plenty of trouble with him myself over the years with his little super injunctions and his hanging out in the land of olive oil, but I won't go on to the, the details. But his little friends, the web sheriff, may try and threaten me, but I'm not scared of you. I've met you, Mr. 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 and Mrs. Web Sheriff, when you worked for the Eccleston family, and uh, I've made a formal complaint to the um, the uh, the Metropolitan Police about uh, the matter of Eccleston today. So that's 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 a different matter, but I won't go there. But it's on record now. Um, but no, Mr. Mr. Well, Sir Elton has, um, you know, he. He said, I feel that the Philip Schofield thing has been totally homophobic. If it was a young um, uh, straight guy with a young woman, it wouldn't make the papers. Well, I think Elton John misses the point. This is an incident that occurred in the workplace. Now, um, Philip Schofield and the young man conducted their fraudulent relationship within the workplace now that's what the problem is it's nothing to do with being gay set you know straight um trans it whatever um sir elton misses the point and that is the issue here philip schofield's been down the chip shop with his granite with his mother today supposedly you know he's hanging out having his fish and chips with his mother and he's had his hair cut and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, it doesn't change the fact that Philip Schofield is a proven liar and a proven deceiver. And that is what matters to this story. I I don't care that people say, oh, I'm being nasty to him. I don't really care about Philip Schofield, full stop. He doesn't interest me, to be honest. But it seems that everybody, I, my audience and your audience don't like this man but the reason we the reason he is wrong is that he has lied and deceived in the workplace and you know it doesn't matter if he were a female a male whatever he lied and deceived in the workplace and he he he, he told on truths repeatedly so he, he shouldn't be allowed to get away with it and that's that's what the whole Philip Schofield story is really about. Let's bring it back to the base of the truth of the story. It doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with whether he's gay or straight. It's got nothing to do with it. And they also rehashed the old Leonardo DiCaprio has relationships with younger w- women uh, rebuttal. But isn't this all nonsense? But that's totally to- different. Because Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, Mr. Titanic, my heart will go on. I drove all night. I did it for you, whatever, on the Titanic. Well, I couldn't stand that horrible film. But, um, but he, he had relationships with women outside of his, his role. That was a personal choice. 
it wasn't in the workplace. Mr. Schofield had sexual relations in the workplace. It's a bit like Bill Clinton and, you know, under the Oval Desk, the Oval, the, the Oval Office desk, uh, you know, having a cigar whilst, you know, she was doing what she was doing, you know, Monica. Um, it's, it's a totally different scenario. Leonardo DiCaprio can have relations with whoever he wants in his private time. That's nothing to do with his work. But Mr. Schofield had that boy in his office. And he admits to that. He hasn't said that's untrue. So that's, that is where the boundary has been crossed. He committed um, relations with that boy in the workplace. And Dame Caroline, whatever her name is, McCall, um, can say whatever she wants. But they asked the question and he lied to them. So he, he, he should be dealt with appropriately for that. Yes. So why is Elton John weighing in at this juncture? Is this because part Elton of a... John, No, because Elton John is a, one of those people who likes to attack the media. This is why he funds Harry and Meghan. He pays for their private jets. He, pays, he uses a firm called the Web Sheriff. They threatened me in the past. I've been taken to... I've, I've had... Oh, we will close you down. They, they operate by what's called the Velvet Glove approach. Um, a former friend of mine, James Stunt, who I haven't seen in years, three years, um, I, I, I like the guy. I wish, you know, we, wish we hadn't uh, stopped speaking to one another, but there was a woman involved who was a complete piece of trouble. Um, but... But um, he employed the web sheriff, so I got to see them in action. They didn't know I was in the room. They didn't have a clue who I was. But they act for people like Lady Gaga and Elton John, and they operate by what's called the Velvet Glove approach. So they say to you, say you, you publish something on your site, or I publish something. They say, we don't like what you've said about our client. Please get rid of it. And if you get rid of it, we will cooperate with you. And then you say, no, I'm not doing that. They then go, if you don't do this, we will destroy you. And this is how they operate. They're called the web sheriff. There's this whole Texan, you know, stick the poker up you sort of behavior. Um, and I've, ex I've experienced these people, but they, this is how, this is why Elton John's got involved in all of this, because he's at war with the media. He hates the media, him and Harry. And this is where it all comes from. They, they think that they are so important that, they, that everybody should kowtow to their behavior. And Elton John and his, you know, his titleless husband, and I, I, I always think Sebastian Shakespeare of the Daily Mail made the most brilliant reference when he, he was at a party and he said, oh, you know, it's wonderful that Elton's got a title. And he went, it's not fair that I don't have one. And he responded, well, what do you want to be called, Lady John? You know, this is, they are so, they're part of what I call the club. And the whole lot of them stick together. Lady Gaga, this Elton John, um, you name it, all of them. And, they, and this Lord Lebedev, who owns the Evening Standard, he's their biggest cheerleader. Um, that's how it works. They all stick together. 
So are you saying that Schofield is still in the club then for other club members to be supporting him? He's not been kicked out. Well, I've had people writing to me saying, how dare you and I make programmes attacking him in recent days. No, he's got. He, they are employing people to stoke up the little um, little dialogue that supports their own agenda. No, no, no. He's definitely not giving up. He's he he believe I I would think that he actually believes he could have a comeback. I know well, you think that, that I know you think that sounds ridiculous, but I actually think that this delusional, deranged dork believes he could actually do that. Viewers, does Philip Schofield have a comeback? Put a one in the chat. No way can Philip Schofield have a comeback. Put two in the chat. And have you seen the news today in the mail about him? He's broke cover for the first time in a month. Yes, he went off for his fish and chips with mum. <laughs> with, old, with old Pat. I think, I think that's her name. Pat, is it? Is it? Phil and Pat. Phil and Pat handed, headed to Pentire Headland or somewhere. She's 87, this dear old Pat. Well, her other son's in prison, so that that's she's she's got two quality kids, hasn't she? I'm not saying anything that isn't untrue there. <laughs> I know you have to be very careful, yes. But I, I, I I'm I'm sorry if I offended your audience, but um but it, it is a factual word because he's been convicted right. of it. So we've got Holly Willoughby and Dermot. Um yes. they've been on the show together. Chief Chef Gino De Campo asks if there any news he should know of. Yes, well, he tried to stir up the thing, but he's been to prison himself. He he, he nicks a guitar from someone's house once, but I think he's quite jolly. I don't know much about him. Um, he's just a silly little man who makes a jolly old j joke. He's, but <laughs> but obviously he he knew what he wanted to do to get himself a bit of detention, but uh, but. I don't think it's really worked out well for him. It's not really... I think he's a bit simple and a bit thick, to be honest. So Gino res responded good, so we can go straight into the cooking. Yes. Joke. We need to rephrase. So yeah. it looks like Holly has come out on top of this whole situation, Matthew. She's well, Holly, just Dolly, been... Holly, Dolly, Holly, Wally is not actually much of a Wally at all. She's No, she, she, she's controlling the narrative as much as she can because she wants to ensure her career goes forward. Now, I, I still say that this whole show should be cancelled, but obviously I'm not I'm not the be-all and end-all of the media. You know, I have been approached about doing a mainstream media show myself, but um, now I would say this woman's clever, of course. Yeah, no, she's controlled the narrative. Good for her. She's... It, she survived the storm at this stage, but does that mean people like her? I don't know. Do you like her? No, I don't think many do. Well, there's enough that like her that she's still surviving. So you and I are perhaps wrong. I, I don't like her. I just think she's dim and dull. I don't know, but maybe I, don't, maybe I am not the audience. I think there's a lot of people who just go with the flow with conventional TV and believe what they're told. Yes. They're manipulated versus the people who are more investigative 
and people who watch independent media who do the research to find out what's actually going on in the world? Well, I I don't see her contributing very much, but somehow she continues to survive. You know, it's it's quite curious. There's a lady of her low caliber, in my view, and I don't think she's got any quality of any note. Um, she seems to be able to get away with it. Why do you think that is? Well, she's got an important husband, doesn't she? Well, he is influential in the world of the media, yes. Um, so, yes, you could be right there. But um, but it, I just see it would be better for that show to be replaced by something new. It could. This is an opportunity, for, in my view, for ITV to make something positive for the change. Make a change and make something good out of this. But they're just happy to carry on with more of the same, it seems. So, have you been to Ascot, Matthew? I haven't been to Ascot. I did have a 33-1 to 1 winner yesterday. I was very happy with mm -hmm. that. I don't know what winners I've had today because I haven't even looked because, frankly, most of the time I tend to be like, you know, the typical better. I tend to lose. Um, but, no, I love horse racing, and it's, uh, it's wonderful that the, our new king and queen are enjoying themselves there, and I think it's fantastic. I I love I love things like that, you know, and the, I love the stories. And yesterday, this man who I I don't know very well, but I have met him, Rich Ritchie, who here yeah, he he didn't think his horse would win, and he was there filmed by Sky News, and he was going, oh yeah, it's good. just tell me it's finished and it's over, and it turned out he'd won as well, and you know, <laughs> Rich Ritchie. And Rich Ritchie got a lot richer. <laughs> I can tell you that. I, <laughs> we love the story. We love the little story. You know, we love the, the stories of the, you know, the, like a couple of years ago, there was this groom and he'd never let out a winner ever. And he was about to retire. And he brought out, after 35 years, he brought out a horse and it won. And we, we I love those kind of little stories. Of, uh, it's a great thing. And it's, and the weather is good, and we're, it's, it's, we need a bit of cheer in our lives because we have so much misery. So a bit of happiness, fantastic. So I'm here with Matthew Steeples of The Steeple Times. Link is in the description box for The Steeple Times and Twitter. We are live, so you've got a unique opportunity right now until 7 o'clock to ask Matthew any questions you want. Well, I will, uh, inter a... I will interject now because... Um, our dear friend Samantha, because we were talking about you know Royal Ascot and the royalty, um, Samantha uh, Markle did write to me, and she she said, "Would I uh, would I tell people about the word wasik?" Because I had to bring the I had to describe some fool I don't know which idiot I was dealing with. Um, so she asked me if I would to your re your followers define the word wasik. And I said, you know, it's a perfect word to throw at the likes of Donald Trump, said The Guardian once. You know, it's a northern popularism. It, it just describes an annoying chump. And my dear friend also, who's a conservative MP, I haven't seen her in a few years, but her parents are very good friends, um, Victoria Atkins, uh, one of the very rare decent conservative MPs. Um, she said it's northern bluntness, taking crap on a shovel. And that's what's... Um, 
that's what Samantha asked me to talk to, to you about this evening. So we've got that in. So on to the next topic. Right. Meghan Markle is accused of faking interviews for Axed Spotify podcast. Industry sources claim the Duchess got staff to do chats with well, archetypes, guests, then had audio of her voice edited. <laughs> well, I think Megane is, um, she's playing the cards because life is falling apart for dear old Megane. We know that. We all know that. Um, but no, I think it's more interesting, all this nonsense that she's tried to to spread about her becoming the face of Dior. That is a load of rubbish. Complete gibberish and Barry Bull, as I would call it. Um, <laughs> no, she, she, Megan, has, has spun a yarn too many. And, you know, the Spotify people have rightly got rid of her because they got tired of her. There's nothing, nothing appealing about having Meghan Markle on your payroll because she doesn't generate revenue. Bring it down to the essentials. If you're a company, you pay somebody because they, they get you profit. And she isn't getting profit. So all this nonsense of, like today, they, that silly Tom Bauer who's trying to sell his books and I, I, I don't mind this man, Tom Bauer. I he wrote a very toady book about Bernie Eccleston, who's something I can't stand. Um, you know, he he said, oh, she's going to change her name to Spencer. Of course she isn't going to change her name to Spencer. He's spinning a yarn as well. Absolute rot. Absolute drivel. This is... Absolute nonsense. This Meghan Markle will cling on to that royal name as long as she can. You know, she's just she's 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 got no moral compass. And silly old Prince Harry and her, well they they are what they are. They're just they're just grabbers of anything they can get. And at this juncture in history, you know, the, the King Charles is coming across rather well and that's rather unfortunate for them, isn't it? We've got a few questions come in. There's one coming okay, for me questions. about. I love a question. Let's have a look. The Tate one. I'll get. I'll get to the Tate one later on, Zoe. Um, I'll just say that innocence or guilt is irrelevant. He's being liquidated, and they will evidence will come about, and he's made it worse by doing these interviews. Um, evidence will come about whether well, it's fabricated or not. I have my opinions about him, but you, you, you will ask me about that, I'm sure. Here we go. Isabella, what do you think, Matthew, about Charles and Camilla being narcissists, allegedly? According to H.G. Tudor, I didn't know that about Camilla, but Charles... Uh, could you tell me who H.G. Tudor is to begin? Because I don't have a clue who H.G. Tudor is. H.G. Tudor... I assume this is some kind of character on the internet. I don't know. Looks like it's a YouTuber who gives you the precise nature of narcissism and explains what it oh. is not. Well, I've never so watched can... H.G. Tudor, so I can't answer the question. Oh, he's a self-proclaimed narcissist, according to Ash. Who, H.G. Tudor? I don't understand Yeah, it this takes question. one to know one, apparently. Oh, well, H.G. Tudor, I don't know. So I, I wish H.G. Tudor well in their endeavours. I don't know. I can't, do... The question doesn't make sense to me. 
So I'm sorry, Isabella, you, you, I can't answer your question. Because you don't believe that Charles and Camilla are narcissists, do you? Uh, I think, well, all I will say about Charles and Camilla, I, I can't answer this question because I don't understand the question. Um, I think that Camilla's campaign about reading is fantastic. I think Charles has done great things on architecture. Um, I think that they are wonderful. I like them very much. Well, Ben is going to put a spanner in your works of his question. He wants to know what you think of Charles doing great stuff, facilitating arms deals with different regimes. Um, well, which regimes and which arms deals? I, I think I threw my about... question back at him. I can't really answer any further than that because I don't know what I he's think... talking about. I think he's intimating totalitarian regimes. Well, which ones? Well, let's ask him to add that. I'd like like to hear more from him, and I'll happily answer when he gives specific detail. All right, if you've got any questions for Matthew, put them in the chat. But no, any other questions, please go ahead. But but I can't answer a question when I don't understand the question. That's that's very important. All right, you're getting asked. Okay, another question. Another question. GB Patriot wants to know if Fergie and Andrew deserve each other. Um. Well, they, they allege that they love being together and they're the most happy unmarried couple in the world. Um, so, in their view, yes. But um, I think the pair of them deserve to, deserve um, finally to answer some questions. I think that would be the correct thing for the pair of them to do. Uh, th- why did, why did um, she take money from a man who um, was a convicted offender because i know your channel's very specific um why did she take that money and why didn't she ever confirm if she didn't repay it and why today has it now been revealed that he has lied about when he last met him he didn't last meet him when he went off for that little meeting in new york he, he's had further meetings since it now it, it now comes to light so yes the pair of them are a disgrace Judith wants to know, in a few words, what do you think of the Andrew Tate character? Um, well, this Andrew Tate is not someone who really interests me. I, I don't find him fascinating in the slightest. I think he's just a bombastic, angry little brat who has profiteered of making money from being nasty. He's just a nasty person. He's... He, he doesn't inspire. He doesn't do good. What does he do? He, he's profiteering by making young people be angry. He's just a social media prat. But the the, the guy, I, I I don't I, I don't know what the whole truth of the story is. Whether he's being falsely accused or whether he's being truthfully accused. But I would say. He doesn't do himself any favours by the moronic, mendacious nonsense he comes out with. He he makes a complete press of himself. Well, I concur that he should be keeping his mouth shut when he's facing decades in Romanian prison because anything he says will be used against him in the court of law and prosecutors are experts at extracting and Mm. changing, extracting words and changing the context of them to incriminate you 
So if he thinks that justice is going to prevail, he's in an absolute dream world. I think he's a fantasist. I think you're totally right. But he doesn't help his cause by coming out with all this craziness. He's made it worse, yeah. By yeah, doing and it. he also attacks the justice system that's dealing with him, and it's best not to do that when you're when you're going through that. Don't attack the system. You can attack the system once you've been cleared. Of course, you can, and fair enough. Never, never attack the system when you're on remand. The system will come down on you with the full force and weight. But but saying um, that these people are backward and all the rest of it. Well, why did he go and live there then? What 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 attracted him to go and live in Romania? What what was so lovely about it in the first place? He thought that he could do what he wanted there. That's an interesting thing about his character. Why did he go there in the first place? And that's a question that you know he he doesn't want to address, does he? Ben Shaw has said, "Hasn't King Charles pocketed money from the Saudis?" Um, well, the royal family are very friendly with the Arabic royal families, of course. So, yes. Yes. Dell, Matthew, do you think Meghan is blackmailing Charles? Um, I think I think King Charles is a little smarter than Meghan. Macaw67, Matthew, are you going to get some pointing work done? I have no idea what that means. Yeah, can you expand on that, McCaw? I have no idea what that means either. I think that's a totally stupid question. Oh, referring to your brickwork, the brickwork behind you. But you're out in the public domain, so that's it doesn't apply. Angela, Matthew, don't you think if Fergie and Andy were so happy together, then why did they get divorced? Well, they regularly talk about... Well, she regularly talks, he doesn't about how they're the most happily divorced couple ever. So, yeah, they are happy together, but um doesn't mean we have to like them. Arcel GB wants to know, Matthew, what's your opinion on the New World Order? Um, I don't know what, 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 what New World Order. Well, there are certain clubs and secret societies where the most powerful people in the world... Yes come together and make certain arrangements regarding the future of the world. Ash has just said something about the Black Rock expose. Well, Black uh, Rock, you know, well, there, there is the thing about Chris Benode, who I have encountered, who is a nasty hedge fund man. He's he's about to be completely cancelled. You know, they've, they've taken him off the list and said he's an improper person. And, um, you know, he has got sexual allegations against him uh, and a, a brilliant journalist from this thing called tortoise um whose mother was the lady blown up in a in in malta um you know the, the, there is a bit of a change coming with some of these powerful characters i agree i think that's no bad thing i would say bring that on i think just because you're rich you shouldn't be able to get away with abuse you know it's time to bring people down and you know, I'd like to see the people that were involved with the woman we can't mention on your channel. Um, you know, I'd like to see some of those people brought to justice. 
You know, I, I, I was the only person that actually rounded up the numbers last week or in that case and said, you know, £384 million was paid to victims. And it's time that victims of other people were also, you know, rewarded and 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 talked about for the things that they went through. So I'm I'm very much of that for you, yes. Let me read you some of this, Matthew. BlackRock employee admits it doesn't matter who wins, they're in my pocket. It's easy and cheap to buy politicians, according to BlackRock employee who was targeted in an undercover investigation. Um, recruiter Serge Valle admitted to a disguised journalist that once you make enough money by investing in a multitude of areas, you can start to buy people. He detailed the corrupt system and confessed the simplicity of buying off candidates, senators, and even the president. Firstly, there's the Senate. You got 10 grand, you can buy a senator. It doesn't matter who wins, they're in my pocket at this point. I could give you 500,000 right now, no questions asked. Are you going to do what needs to be done? Yeah, of course. Why not? What do you think about that? Well, I think you, I think your your sentiment is entirely right. People can buy people. That's just how, sadly, life works. And um, it, the more money you've got, the more power you've got, the more ability you've got to be able to buy people to do whatever you want them to do. So, that is the sad state of affairs in this modern world. And um, people of the type that we talk about can afford to do that because if you've got resources, you just send a bung. Have you watched Succession yet? I've watched bits of it, but I don't have Sky. I, I, I wouldn't want to pay money to fund Murdoch. So I, don't, I, I know you don't like paying for a TV license, so you don't watch the BBC. I just don't want to buy Sky. I don't want to watch Sky. But I, no, I, I have seen bits of it. I enjoyed it. But and, and I have spent time with Mr. Mur. I, I once had a cup of tea with him. Very nice. I, I found him a very nice man when I spent time with him. But um, it was only for 20 minutes. But he wanted to know what I was up to. That was all. Um, he's very direct. Um, and I've, I've known other megalomaniacs of the same type. So <laughs> I, I kind of have... I, I, I like the concept of the program, you know, and, and I also encountered, um, you know, Maxwell, and he shouted at me. He wasn't nice. Um, you know, these people who are of that level of power, um, and I, I did go to a dinner party once with um, Conrad Black, that was the most fascinating thing because I saw how the bullying nature of how he worked, because he was he was a deranged cat. He's a deranged man. You know, he he had Napoleon's penis in a jar. That was the kind of weird penis complex he had. Um, you know, these me these me media tycoons of a certain level. They get rather carried away. You know, you've got Richard Desmond, who's just a bit of a pornographer, baron, you know, porn baron, and a few you know, lads mags and, and all the rest of it. And then you go up through the ranks and you've got the Barclay brothers who were the weird twins. 
and you know they're both well one's dead and the, the other's losing control of the paper now and then you've got Rupert Murdoch who's the Mr. Secession who the, most people watching this will kind of know a bit more about who to be in that level of power you control politicians you control you control everybody but are you happy are you content they're weird people and i have met a couple of them but um i would say i wouldn't want to be one of them would you soulless they also rupert murdoch is like a toad he's just like he's just like a walking toad that's that's the only way i ever when i met him i thought I sat there and I said, why do you want, why did you want to meet me? And he went, I want to know what you're up to, he said. And I just looked at him and I thought, okay. And I was about 25 at the time. And I thought, fine. And I sat in this apartment in St. James's next to the, the, um, the hotel there. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, what was it called, the hotel? Next to Green Park. And, this, and I just thought, why the hell am I here? And then I left. He didn't get what he wanted out of me, so I was dismissed. I thought, bizarre. Let, let me continue this quote then. Oh. This is from the BlackRock employee. Hmm. Let me tell you, it's not through who the president is. It's who's controlling the wallet of the president, the hedge funds, BlackRock, the banks... These guys run the world. Wow. Well, I think whoever this person is a bit, bit obsessed with BlackRock, but, but BlackRock is only one of many entities. I would say to any of these people, watch that film called The Ghostwriter, which is based on, you know, Tony Blair's life history. It's a brilliant film um, because... That's what it's all about. You know, you have all these people in the background who fund you as a prime minister, as a president. That film, that film to me sums up what I've seen. I think it's the most wonderful example of the truth of the... It, it, of course, it's a fictionary film, but, um, but it, it, that is what I would watch if I were any people interested in this story, because... The power of those people, they literally, it's what goes on in the background that really matters. It's, it's the general public don't have a clue. Well, James O'Keefe, he put a quote out after this investigation and said, we hope and believe by showing these tapes of this BlackRock gatekeeper speaking yes. so plainly on so many topics that we not only wake up people, but also inspire others to come forward on institutions like BlackRock. There we go. Well, your friend Martin says, I don't have any idea about what is going on. Well, um, Mr. Martin's entitled to his views. But, um, and your friend Kraken here says, would I sign up for a commercial submarine? Now, I don't... I, I, I'm fascinated by the Titanic. I have to say, I join everybody in the world. You know, one of, somebody who I met, 
his family were the only people who got off the Titanic with their luggage. And I found that fascinating because, you know, because it was a victim of, it was a, a disaster. They, when their luggage was taken into New York, where, it, where they were eventually taken, nobody ever checked it. So God knows what was in their luggage. But, you know, their, them getting off with their luggage meant that other people died. Um, but I, I don't find it, I find it grim and gruesome, the f mere thought of wanting to go and look at the Titanic. You know, it's a graveyard and it's, I just find it distasteful to go and look at it. I don't, I, I, I don't know why anyone would want to go there. Um, you know, and, and all the, and I hate that film. I can't stand the music. You know, I, Celine Dion is somebody who makes me feel violent, to be honest. Her music is, she drove all night. She did it for you. Her heart will go on, you know, all the rest of it. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Celine. But um, uh, but I, I just think it's horrible, this whole Titanic thing. But these pe poor people, I hope they are rescued. That's all I will say. I can't, I can't say any more than that. I. But would you, why would you want to go and look at this? I, I wouldn't myself, but I, I, even if I were worth a hundred million pounds, I wouldn't go. But I hope these people are rescued. That's all I shall say. Thank you for all the questions coming in. We are running 10 minutes behind them right now. We are trying to get through them. Next one is from Angela Thompson. Why doesn't King Charles put his foot down and tell him to get the hell out of the big house and go live at Frogmore Cottage? So he's talking. So so Angela is talking about Andrew. Yes. Um, uh, so um, well, I, he ought to be told. Yes, he should go and live somewhere else. But um, he doesn't seem willing. And he's got his little friend who's called Spotty, um, this banker from uh, Jersey, who's funding him. And supposedly they're sticking their heels in and he wants to stay at his own home so yes but i think angela is uh, you've got rid of the question it, it was angela wasn't it um well i think angela is right i would say throw him out next question do you think that the toxic duo marriage will come to an abrupt end soon given how all is going south so spectacularly well for the moment, the two of them have got no other option to stick together, have they, really? But, um, you know, I would hope that Prince Harry could redeem himself and go off to Africa and do something good, but he just looks more and more increasingly like the village idiot, doesn't he? So do you think it is fizzling out? Um, I think that they are they're not happy. He's obviously spending time in the hotel room alone. Um, she looks pretty angry in those photographs, but she stages those photographs. And we all know that she's the one calling up the people to get those photographs. So that's an important thing to remember. She actually calls for the photographs. And I don't think the public realise that. She's the one ringing up because it wouldn't happen unless she organised it. Matthew, other than the king and queen, which member of the royal family do you respect the most? Well, Princess Anne. Why? Because I think the lady behaves with dignity and she does her job. 
She just gets on with it. You know, she was born into this. She's she de- she had no choice about it, but she gets up and does the job. Good for her. Fantastic woman. Let's see. This is a question for me. I once said I wasn't going to sell out and talk about celebrity gossip. So why is this once great show? <laughs> so all of our true crime stories are coming out as usual. We have expanded our horizons. Oh, I, would, I think- would like to talk with you about more true crime stuff. And, you know, the other day you had that man going on about the, um, you know, the, the Barrymore. And, uh, da, 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 and then you had another person going on about... Um, that matter of the Range Rover murders, and well, you had somebody else who's uh, supposedly some witness to it, Mr. Bernard Mahoney or something, his name is. Um, well, I, I did do some research after that into the person I mentioned that he said was nothing to do with it. Well, you know, you, we, we should do more about things like that, yes. I think you, you have a brilliant audience. And you could talk about many different things. And I think your your ability is, and this is why I like you, as opposed to this other person called James English that they go on and on about. <laughs> Let's keep, keep keep his name. Keep his name. Oh, I, well, I didn't know you could talk about him. I've never met this man. I, filed, I had to they, file they, a lawsuit. I had to file a lawsuit against him. Oh, well, did they bombard me with, with all this nonsense? <laughs> I don't even know who he is. I've never even watched him. But anyway... They all they, they all say I should I should talk with you about other things. So yes, but you 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 have a multi talented audience, uh, fa- uh, 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 contributors, and I think you're brilliant, and it's great, and it's just nice to talk about lots of different things. Absolutely, and that is the point here. So we started out as a prison channel. We were the first prison channel back in two thousand and seven, yeah. was when this channel started. The blog started in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. Then we expanded into other prison stories. Then we expanded into true crime. Now I'm blessed to have 20 people working on the channel, six co-hosts, and we cover everything from Bigfoot, UFOs, psychotherapists. But and I, think yes, we do- I think it is refreshing that you can talk about you know, um, the royal family and you can talk about you know, the old gangsters from London, and you can talk about this, and you can talk about that, and you can talk about the other. That's refreshing. But you, 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 you've you, become more than just crime, yes. I will say that, because it's you can't just call yourself crime anymore, because you're not, because you talk about other things. Because Philip Schofield, is not, uh, he, he's not committed a crime. Our podcast is called the True Crime Podcast, but I'm going to take the True Crime off it and just call it podcast. Yes, I think you are Sean Atwood. Sean Atwood's podcast, Sean Atwood's True Crime Podcast. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've got um, 10 years ago, we were 98% lads were the viewers, and now we've got 50-50 men, women. We've got a big American uh, following. But that is also also curious, because... True crime is mostly women. Prison stories. We were prison stories, and that's mostly men. No, but but the but that that crime conference we went to, the, the majority of them were, I would say, women. Yeah, for true crime, serial killer stuff, especially, it's yeah. women. But for prison stories, it's men interested in those. And we we were a prison no, channel for many years. That you are, but, you, but there you go. It, the world evolves, doesn't it? 
everything evolves and we are just trying to cover a broader range of subjects without reducing our true crime output which is the constantly but, but everything your, else is in addition core. that's your core like my core yeah. of, my core of what i do is exposing corruptness i just i just go after it i, I am what i am <laughs> and, and i annoy a lot of people so what's the next question? Right, next Martin, question. how can you know about the habits of the powerful and not know about the new world order? I find this very odd. I know about lots of things, but I don't know what Martin's question is about. So Lee wants to know how we met Matthew. We had lunch, didn't we? We had a pub. Um, where was that pub? No, no, in no. no, I, no we had Richmond a... or somewhere? No, I'd, I'd already met you by then. No, I, I met at you the studio. No, I came, I came to your studio with my friend Ben Abrahams, son of Tony the Vodka. <laughs> and uh, no, I came and we were in that that weird place in the bottom of a garden. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I went to a nice lunch and I turned up there and I thought, my God, this is a with, the, gl with the Glastonbury <laughs> toilets. <laughs> well, I didn't go in there. I was the only one that never visited it. He did. He, that's why he didn't want to come back. <laughs> it was it was it was Ash who found that you were researching a certain About person yes. with a real estate angle, and no one else was covering it. And then that's how you came to our attention. And you came to the studio. We had lunch, and since yeah, then we didn't we've... have lunch. Then no, no, no. I, we, I, I'd already had lunch when I. Moved. Since then, we've come and celebrated birthdays and all sorts with you, haven't I know, we, Matthew? We've, we've spent lots of time together. Yes, and it's it's wonderful, and we'll spend much more time together, hopefully. Indeed, Adam wants to know, Matthew, what's your opinion of Matthew Wright's impact on John Leslie being fired from this morning, the vacancy then going to Mr. Schofield? Well, uh, my friend is um, Amelia Wright, who is the wife of Matthew Wright. Um, I do know a little of this. Um, I, I'm not really, a, I don't really view the program, so I didn't really follow this whole saga of that. But um, yes, it did help Mr. Schofield get promoted. And that's not really, uh, that probably was uh, rather unfortunate. But I will say, Matthew Wright is someone I like. Uh, I think he's a happy, nice, decent man. And, you know, perhaps he should be a bit promoted, along with um, Charles Brandreth and uh, my old friend Christine Hamilton. And I hope, I would hope that maybe they could reform the ways of this morning and if they're going to keep the damn horrible program, we'll make it a bit more fun. Michael wants to know how Jen is doing, Sean. Jen's doing phenomenal. We've done three videos now for the Family Channel. The first one was posted earlier this week, and if you want to see it, just go to the Atwood family on YouTube, and it should come right up. And it was uh, pregnancy advice and birth advice from a doula, who was a lovely woman we met in Lincoln. All right, well, next. Happiness galore to the child. And, uh, Thank you. Arsal, I want to drink what Matthew's drinking. I'm afraid I'm on cheap white wine this evening. <laughs> Nothing special. Ben, do you know about the protests going on in Leicester since May 1st? Dozens of arrests, police constantly there. 
do I know about these arrests? Well, I don't know. No, no, I've no idea about arrests. And... No. With our um, exposing the war on drugs, etc., have you heard what's happening in Ohio? 30 children have gone missing in a few weeks. I've not heard about that. Have you, Matthew? Um, I'm afraid I could not possibly comment on something I don't know about. <laughs> Jack says, Matthew, great to see Matthew firing on all cylinders. Okay, well, cheers to Jack. I'll <laughs> say, here we go, Jack. Cheers to you, mate. Ms. DD. Hi, everyone. Love Sean and Matthew. Always an awesome show. Thank you very much. Our Sal, Princess Anne is a legend in my eyes, down to earth and hardworking. Well, there you go. That, that is somebody who understands the situation. I think she's a hard-working royal. She does her job and she doesn't complain. And her own children were never given titles. So that is why they should be able to do their commercial work. It's quite the opposite of me gain and her dreadful drip of a husband. Fiona wants to know if we're going to cover the disappearance of Noah Donahoe. Uh, I, I've Belfast. had many people writing to me about this and asking me if I will talk about this on your channel. And um, I don't know enough about it, but something doesn't quite make sense about how this child went missing. But um, I can't deal with everything. I, I'm very much focused on cases like Mark Alexander, who last week was able to get a victory at the high, uh, the Royal Courts of Justice. Um and I, I want to support people like that, who people who don't get voices. This, this, that story is, you know, a big story. And I met some Irish people yesterday who were very involved, and in, you know, they, 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 they like the idea of talking about this Noah. But I don't know enough about it. It's not my. I don't have any connection to it. I, I can't do everything, and like you can't do everything. You know, you. you we have choose... done one podcast on it. We did do. Yeah, one. but you, 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 you have the ability to do this because you've got a, a broad voice. I, I have to choose very carefully the things I get involved in. And, you know, the the people who we've talked about about this Scott, um, um, what I can't forgotten his name, Scott Mitchell, Luke Mitchell, Luke Mitchell. Yes, I, I'm sorry, I've even forgotten his name. See, but they write to me and they, they tell me I should be campaigning for him. But I've already got, you know, Omar Benguet. I've already got, which I haven't done enough for, and I'm very disappointed I haven't done enough for him. And I have to do more for him because he's had a terrible time last week with his mother and, uh, um, and his sister. We can't take on everything. Yeah, and we're helping Jason Moore as well right right now. We went and demonstrated in London for Jason yeah. Moore. No, no, um, no, that's one. I, I would like to look at that. So you're going to, have to tell me all about that in due course. But I can't take on everything. You know, Jeremy Bamber. I have, you know, have big connections with that case in lots of different ways. And you know, there are, we all have to choose carefully what we can actually do and what we can actually achieve something with hello angela so you're asking will i get linda calvi on again the black widow to talk about myra hindley well i'd like to meet her i did meet her briefly outside your um your dungeon in the <laughs> council estate or whatever it was 
Um, I, I would like to, I would happily meet her again. But She's part of the campaign with Bobby Cummins to free Jason Moore. Also, she's in my book that's coming out next year called Sit Downs with Female Gangsters. And my book, it's a three-book series, Sit Downs with Gangsters is coming out in July. That's the male ones. All right, so um, Jake would like to see more debates. Ash is in charge of debates. The Damage Done is an excellent book. I have read it and I recommend it and I've spoke to the guys involved with it. It is it is brilliant. Um, let's have a look. The questions, we're still 10 minutes behind. I'm just scrolling through them now. Uh, Martin is saying, Matthew, the Royals are heavily involved in the New World Order. Do you really not know or don't wish to discuss it? Well, I, I don't really... I, I, I don't buy into all this conspiracy now. Sorry. McCaw says you are a traitor, Matthew, for for uh, having cheap wine. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it's that cheap. I've had cheaper <laughs> in my life. <laughs> I've had more expensive, yes. I should be in the south of France right now, but I'm unfortunately not. So. <laughs> um, Judith was wondering whether you could say frizzle for me at some point. Frizzle. Imogen, Imogen, um, if you go on YouTube and just put in Sean Atwood, Noah, Donahue, and it, it, the podcast will come up. And we would love to get Noah's mum on the channel if she's up for it as well. Well, I'm sorry for this poor boy, Noah, because I've, I've seen a lot of it by that lady we met called Nicola Talent. Um um, I met some Irish people yesterday. They had very curious views about the matter as well. Scott says he's not guilty. I was at a protest in Glasgow last year for the poor guys, fitted up. So we're now back on to the, um, the other Luke boy. Mitchell. Yes. Luke Mitchell. No, I, look, I, I don't know the story, but I think that the evidence suggests that there is something... That would suggest the case should be reinvestigated, like I say, the case of Jeremy Bamba should be reinvestigated, and the case of um, Mark Alexander, who I, who I believe is totally innocent, and Terry Waite, who was rightly honoured uh, the weekend by a wonderful King Charles. Um, you know, I I think that um, Mark Alexander is the person I want to see freed first because. Frankly, Mark Alexander has never admitted his guilt. He's never done anything wrong. Anyway, his father was an evil man, and it's a Midsummer Murders fit up. It's a disgrace. It's a it's disgraceful, and he's the one I totally one hundred percent. Terry Waite convinced me of the his innocence, and I would like to see him freed from prison. This is a man who should be out. If he'd admit, if he would say he was guilty, he would be out already. He is the one I'm really, 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 really after getting out of prison first. You've been asked about Rolf. Yeah, but Rolf Harris. So don't get me going there. You've been asked about Rose West, but let me just clarify something. Rose Matthew West. Er Matthew earlier said he would like to meet Linda Calvey, not Myra Hindley. So you've been asked, would you like to meet Rose West? Why the hell would I want to meet her? 
I, I wouldn't want to have a drink with such a nasty piece of toe rag in my entire life. Awful. That's a terrible, a terrible suggestion. No, thank Mac you. McCall wants to know if you think Julian Assange should be freed. I certainly think Julian Assange well, should be freed. Well, you do, but no, well, I, I, uh, my friend Amanda, who, you know, is a friend of yours as well, um, yep, they're all into supporting him. But no, no, I, I, I and one of my friends gave... She 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 housed him and lost all her money because oh we've got a pigeon arriving now um, just for fun um, no um, no I I'm not a great fan of um, Mr Assange but um, I I I think it, he he abused the British justice system um, I'm not really infused by him I'm not really interested in him either way but. There we go. Jane, Jane said, what do you know about Annie Lennox? What do you mean, what do I know about Annie Lennox? She's the most delightful lady I've ever... She's a friend of the family and she's an absolute delight. I love Annie Lennox. What's she like then? You said she's a friend of the family in person. Oh, she's fantastic. Great fun. Lovely lady. I've never... I, I love her singing. Uh, she's so nice. Wonderful. No, I wouldn't have a word, bad word, said against her. She's delightful. What, 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 what's the problem with her? What's she done wrong? Five minutes left to get your questions in for Matthew no, why, Steeples. Why, why, are they, why are they angry against her? Well, the question does not have uh, anger attached to it, Matthew. They're just asking what you think about her. No, but, 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 but you know, why, why ask that question though? I think it's like knows... asking, what do you think about Donald Duck? <laughs> no, Matthew, you're like a walking encyclopedia of people that most of us have never met. Who well, are I quite love Annie. Annie. Annie Lennox is delightful. <laughs> so stick that in your pipe and smoke it, whoever you are. <laughs> I love her. You've got, you've got a do you like, did you, do you like Dolly Parton is coming? <laughs> Dolly Parton? I don't know her, but I think she's rather cool. Good for her. Love her. Did you enjoy the Giles Brandreth gig? Giles Brandreth, I, uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic friend. He's coming down here to perform in Broadstairs, and I'm going to be there. Don't worry. I hope you all really? come. Yes, really? he's going to be doing a little performance at the local theatre. Oh, yes, we'll all be there. For, I hope you come. Thoughts on Michael Van Gerwen? I've no idea who he is. Me neither. Got a few Pass. British bulldog Got... can, can just define who he is. He sounds Got boring. Few... <laughs> we got a few minutes left to get. Some I like questions. okay. People say that I don't like anyone. Well, I love lots of people. I love Margaret Thatcher. Um, I love um, uh, Patricia Routledge. You know, Mrs. Bucket. He's a darts player, Matthew. A darts player. Well, I, I, well, I loved um, um, my old mate, um, Jim Bowen. Bit of bully. Love him. Kaz, I don't know anything Kaz, about whoever this one is. Kaz, I've never heard of Kaz, <laughs> what do you think about Donald Duck? Donald Duck. Donald Duck. I already brought Donald Duck up. I like Donald Duck. Lovely. Charming. What? What do you think about Billy Ray Cyrus? I don't even know who Billy Ray Cyrus is. What do you think about poodles in general? 
And my friend, Claire Rubenstein, has a poodle. Lovely thing. Delightful. So I don't... Can I, you... Do you have to ask me stupid qu questions? Can you... Is a better one, Matthew, from Andy. Five Can you, ra you rank your top five grifters. Well, obviously, Fergie is number one. Fergie? Fergie. Um, <laughs> then we have Boris Johnson's wife, Carrie. Carry on, not regardless. She's number two. Um, <laughs> Why? Why? Because she's a right little thieving little brat. Uh, right, so number two. Right, you want a third one? Oh, God. You're putting me on the spot here. Um, right, number three of Grifters. Um, uh, Victoria Beckham. Oh, she's a right pest. Uh, Why? Have you got a story? Have you got uh, an anecdote? I did have a run-in with her. Oh, and then there's uh, Mary. You, you had a run-in. Mary you... Berry. I don't like Matthew, her. you had a run-in with the Beckhams? Oh, I've had a run-in with Ferg. Oh, yeah, with, with the Mrs. Beckham. Oh, yeah, she's horrible. Um, no, but you, what? you, you, what? you, you that's, a, that's a story for another day. Um <laughs> So we've got we've got uh, Mary Berry. Uh, no, uh, uh, let me think of another one. Who else don't I like? Of all the, oh god, it's hard to get to four and five. Uh, <laughs> see, I, I, I like most people. All uh, right, uh, which other ones don't I like? Um, oh, Alexa Chung, she's pretty vile. Uh, she could go up there. I don't know why she can go into like group. Um, I don't know. I like most people. Don't. Matthew, we've I've run done out four. of time. You've run out of time. Megan wasn't on it, on the list. No, no, she's not. She's not really relevant. <laughs> no. Right, people. You can find the Steeple Times link in the description box, mm. and you can stalk Matthew on Twitter. And thank you to all the people who have subscribed to him. And we will keep you posted about our upcoming tour. Well, there we go. We could we could be... Uh, well, I'll, I'll have to think about which five I don't like and which five... I, but I would say we should have lists of people we like. Much more well, positive and much nicer. We'll save that for next time. Yes. Well, I will. I will have lists of people I like. All right. Thank you, you Matthew. We will spot, but um, but I hope you have a lovely evening, and I'll keep watching, and I'll try and join in your chat. Rest, enjoy the rest of the evening in Broadstairs. Well, there I am. Here I am, sitting outside with my horrible pointed brickwork that they didn't like. <laughs> it's not Take mine, care, my friend. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Cheers, cheers. All right, it's time to bring in our next guest, and Stephen Knight is taking over so i will see you soon my friend see you soon well rizwan thank you for joining us how are you doing doing well thanks for having me on your show it's a pleasure i'm, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about uh, your your area of expertise your interest what you write about there's so many things in there that fascinate me from consciousness its origins uh, ancient religions as well virtual reality my massive virtual reality fan. I, I dabble in video games uh, as well, so I can't wait to get stuck into it all. Uh, but maybe you could tell us uh, exactly what you do. How would you describe your work? Well, you know, my work usually bridges the gap between 
many of the different areas that you just talked about, but primarily between technology, uh, consciousness, science, and science fiction. Uh, and so, you know, I was the author of a book called The Simulation Hypothesis, which is about the idea that we live inside a video game. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley for almost a decade. Uh, and we built the number one game in the app, video game in the app store uh, quite a while ago now. And then I became an investor and ran a, a startup program at MIT for virtual reality and augmented reality um, types of startups. And I just published a new book um, just uh, recently this week called Wisdom of a Yogi, which takes many of these ideas about virtual reality and applies them to ancient Indian mystical concepts. Awesome. So, you know, May I ask a, a small favor before we get into the details of that? Is, is it possible to adjust your camera slightly so that we're more symmetrical? Perfect. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I suppose the first thing that really kind of raises an eyebrow or makes me um, want to understand what you mean is this idea of melding ancient religion with scientific concepts it seems like a lot of people would want to draw a line down the middle of them two worlds and say you have your religion and mysticism on one side but you have your objective material science on the other hand how, how is it that you can make those things compatible well i'll tell you a story so a few years ago i was uh, playing a virtual reality ping pong game at a startup in san francisco in marin county across from the bay there was a great view of the san francisco skyline but instead of enjoying it i put on this kind of big and bulky virtual reality headset. And I started to play uh, table tennis. Uh, and the responsiveness of the game was so good that for a moment, my brain was fooled into thinking that I was playing a real ping pong game. Uh, and at the end of the game, I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table. And of course there was no table. So the controller fell to the floor and I almost fell over. And so that caused me to start thinking about how long would it be before we are able to build something like the Matrix, right? In the Matrix, if you remember at the beginning, Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, uh, thought he was in the real world, but it turns out he wasn't in the real world. He was in a computer simulation. And so, you know, I came up with this idea of a, a simulation point, which is a kind of technological singularity where we could build virtual worlds that are indistinguishable phys from physical reality. And so the more I then went and researched into science, the more that I found that physicists keep telling us there is no such thing as the material world, right? They keep looking for this thing called matter, but you know, this table, this chair is mostly empty space and the atoms within it are mostly empty space. And then you get to the subatomic particles and the only thing they can find at the bottom is information uh, or bits of information, if you will. And that turns out to be very similar to this idea of rendering a world based on information inside a Fortnite or a World of Warcraft. And so this reminded me very much of what the ancient uh, Indian mystics have been telling us. They've been telling us that the world is Maya, uh, which is a Sanskrit word that means illusion. Or in the Buddhist traditions, that's, that we are in the world of samsara, which is also part of this world of illusion. And so they've been telling us that we come in, we play a role, we then step out, we then come back and we have a different character. And in, in video games, the characters are called avatars, uh, which is another ancient Sanskrit word, which means to descend, to come down. And it turns out even the uh, Judeo-Christian religions have been saying something similar. There is the here, which is the physical world, which is not the real world. And then there is the hereafter. And so, you know, by using this 
metaphor, uh, and it depends how deep you want to take the metaphor, it can become an actual scientific idea, it can become an actual technological uh, feat of engineering, or it can be a metaphor that's used that, that allows me to bridge the gap between these different worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think VR, virtual reality and augmented reality are going to be huge hurdles only, you know, societal wise, ethically wise, in the, as it approaches photorealism. What something interesting you said there about playing ping pong and you experienced a sort of psychological presence where suddenly your brain doesn't care about pixel counts. It's, it's honed in on the physicality of it. Does it respond and move and conform to everyday physics? And I've, I, that's something I struggle to sell VR to friends when they only see sort of 2D images of it in videos whereas the reality is if you put on a headset if somebody throws a brick at you in vr your your brain doesn't take a minute to count the pixels on it before attempting to dodge it so i mean how, how much more advanced do you think this sort of technology will get because it seems to me like virtual reality for the longest time was almost thought of as a gimmick that would never catch on it feels like it's tipped over into that uh, area now where it's got enough people behind it to sustain it and grow yeah, that's right. So there have been waves of interest in virtual reality, you know, going all the way back to 1968, uh, when the first kind of headset was built, that was called the Sword of Damocles, because it was so heavy. And it reminded people of an ancient Greek myth where a king sat on the throne and there was this sword above their head. And so the headsets have continued to get smaller and the technology has gotten better since then. Just a few weeks ago, Apple had its big announcement in California uh, of its Vision Pro headset, which was a virtual and augmented reality headset. And so within this headset, you could basically project, you know, a, uh, a monitor as big as you want or multiple monitors and they'll float in the air. And so you could watch like a movie like Avatar 2, The Way of Water. You could watch it in 3D right, right in your living room, but on a screen that looks as big as if you were at an IMAX theater. And so, you know, in, in, in my book, The Simulation Hypothesis, I laid out the 10 stages to the simulation point, uh, which is this point where we can create these matrix-like uh, games that are indistinguishable from reality. We're at about stage five right now. So we're about halfway there. But what's going to happen is that these headsets will get smaller and smaller. And eventually you'll have headsets that are maybe, you know, no bigger than my glasses here. And that can project a person in the room as if you were talking to them directly. So I think we may have reached a, a tipping point, but right now the applications are still niche applications in the sense that uh, video games is one application area and enterprises, you know, use this for training because you can learn, like for example, Walmart uses it for uh, training forklift drivers. You know, if you, it can be very expensive to train people if they're going to like mess up and <laughs> throw a bo heavy box down and it's going to fall. <laughs> but with, and and by the way, you know, uh, Elon Musk and, and Tesla and other self-driving car companies, they train their algorithms within virtual worlds first, right? Because the the danger if something goes wrong is much less in those virtual worlds. Uh, and so it's true that we react the same way if somebody smiles at us in virtual reality or if it's in a video game versus the real world, but also AI can train itself based upon experiences in the virtual world as well. So I, I, it'll be a while before we get to that point, but uh, the physics engines are already good. The resolution is coming. This new Apple headset, which I'm excited about, I think will be a, a big key to getting there, but we still need a lot smaller, uh, a lot smaller glasses to accomplish something like that. 
Well, like I say, I'm fascinated with VR, so I could probably keep you talking about that for the duration of this conversation. So a, a one last thing I'll, I'll say on it. And I suppose, I mean, it just ties back into this training aspect you mentioned. We sort of fought with truck drivers and things like that. Is there a difference with the way we sort of create new memories or experiences depending on the stimulus? Because I suppose if you're having an experience, say, in a cinema and it's a 2D screen, you can get lost in that world for a while, but your memory on your brain doesn't process it as you being physically present whereas in virtual reality it's almost a way of tricking you to make you think you are there and have experienced these things firsthand um does this affect the way you will store this information will you be storing virtual experiences as though they are indistinguishable from real memories well in a sense we're already doing this right if you think about it we are not really having a conversation right now <laughs> i'm talking to my computer uh, and it's translating my voice into bits which is being sent out over the wire and i believe you're in the uk and you're talking to your computer so we're already having a virtual conversation and i will be able to remember this conversation almost as if i had a conversation with you in person. So, you know, this is a process that's been ongoing since the invention of the telephone. But what happens is when you take it to its conclusion, when you get to virtual reality, it's much easier to lose yourself. Uh, you know, in the movie theater, you can always stop and look around, mm. right? But, and yet we have memories, you know, the new Indiana Jones film is coming out. You know, and I have memories as a, as a kid when I went to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. And to me, you know, that was real or Star Wars, you know, that was very real. I felt like I had been transported to that place and I forgot about my surroundings. Uh, and, and it turns out that this is something that the mystics have been talking about for a while. And within the Tibetan traditions, they have this idea of dream yoga. And the idea is that when you're having a dream, you also are in a simulated world and you've forgotten about the outside world. And so what you can do is you can learn to wake up within the dream. You can realize that, hey, this is just some kind of a dream world around us. Uh, and that is a process that, that the dream yoga is a, a way to understand that perhaps the whole world is some kind of a dream. So it's sort of like those, lucid, lucid dreaming. It's very much like lucid dreaming, which is our modern term for becoming aware, but there was a whole spiritual context to it that comes about. Now, if you go back in time, they use metaphors like the dream or the Leela, which is a, a term from the Hindu Vedas from 5,000 years ago, uh, which means a play, like the play of the gods or a, a stage play. And of course, Shakespeare used the same similar terminology 500 plus years ago when he said all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players now there was this one of the first indian swamis who came over to the u.s and to the west and lived here was uh, swami yogananda who wrote a book called autobiography of a yogi which is pretty well known at least in the u.s and around the world as as, as bringing these ideas to the west and he is like to use the metaphor of a modern technology at the time which was the same one you're talking about now, which is a movie projector, right? He said you are projecting onto the screen and the, what seems like real is actually light that's being rendered and that the suffering that you see on the screen happens for the characters, but it doesn't mean that the act, it's happening to the actors, but yet they've chosen to be in that play or in that movie. And so, you know, if, if swamis like that were alive today, I, I, my guess is they would say it's like a movie, but it's interactive and you can change the script and a bunch of you are playing at once. And what does that sound like? A massively multiplayer online role-playing game, video game. So I suppose the big question is, if we were in a simulation right now, 
what I mean, how on earth would we find clues? How, how could we possibly know we were in a simulation? And I suppose what would be the point of, of, of running a simulation such as this? Well, so you got a couple of questions there, right? People often ask me, what's the point of running a simulation, especially one that's so realistic uh, that we forget ourselves? And, and I always like to say, well, let's, let's look at two questions. One, why do we play video games? And then second, why do we run simulations on our computers, right? Uh, and so the first question is, why do we play video games? Well, we play them to have experiences that we can't necessarily have outside of the video game, right? So I can't necessarily <laughs> hop on a dragon and fly around in the quote unquote physical world, but I could do it inside a Lord of the Rings or you know some Final Fantasy video game uh, that might be out there. Right, so those are experiences that we can have. We, we or we take on different identities, right? Uh, just like in Dungeons, you know, when I was a kid, we used to play Dungeons and Dragons. We used to have a character sheet. We would say, "Okay, my character is an elf, but it's a wizard, and he has these, you know, these attributes, etc." And you'd roll the dice and you'd get those attributes. And so we do it to have experiences that we can't necessarily have. Now, on the flip side, is we say, "Why do we run simulations like we run simulations of the weather?" or simulations of how a pandemic might go, uh, or you know, simulations of different particles, or simulations of trying to land on the moon. And why do we do that? We do that in order to see what is the most likely outcome. And that's why we always run more than one simulation when we run them. Or second, we run them to see what is the, the, the best outcome, like what steps would we need to take to try to get the best outcome. And so we end up running these simulations. Now, our simulation is like what Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom calls uh, an ancestor simulation. That, that's what he thinks it is. Uh, an ancestor simulation is like if we were to create a video game or a simulation of ancient Rome, right, or of ancient Britain or of ancient, any ancient uh, place or civilization, they would be our ancestors, right? So we're, we're, we consider ourselves more technologically advanced than them, so we can basically simulate their whole civilization. And so it's possible there's future versions of us simulating this entire civilization to see what might happen. Uh, and that could be to see if we are able to get off the earth, if we ruin the earth, to see if we destroy ourselves, uh, you name it. There, there's lots of different reasons why you might run a, a simulation like this. I mean, just to tie back into religion as well, I mean, it does feel there is a human predisposition to almost want some sort of eternal father figure. This, this is something a little bit comforting, as well as terrifying, I suppose, about the idea of something watching over us, being in control of our every move, uh, almost a way of saying we're incredibly special, that someone's gone to all this care and effort to focus solely on us and our lives, etc. I mean, could could this idea of a simulation stem from this this need to have some sort of eternal father figure? Uh, it could, but you know, when you look at the religions, there, you know, they, there is this idea, at least in, in some of the religions, of an eternal father figure. But there's also this idea that uh, there are other entities that are watching us. Uh, that, for example, angels, etc. Or within the Islamic traditions, you have jinn as well. And you know, within the Bible, there's the recording angels. And you actually have this in the Quran as well, which talks about two angels, one of whom writes down your good deeds. 
and one of whom writes down your bad deeds. Well, those are just metaphors in a sense, right, uh, from 2,000 years ago. But if you were to design a system, and I'm a scientist, computer scientist and an engineer, I'd say, how would I do that? Well, I would record everything that's happening. I wouldn't necessarily need angels. I just need computer processes that record everything that's happening. And some folks who've had uh, near-death experience, uh, like there's this gentleman named Daniel Brinkley that I know well. He wrote a book called Saved by the Light, which was a bestseller back in the 90s. He was struck by lightning, and he and thousands of others report something called a life review, right? It's like the old term, my life flashed before my eyes, but this is much more comprehensive. He calls it a holographic panoramic life review, where you replay every event that happened in your life, but you do it from the point of view of other people. So if you, you know, shot someone or, or did something bad or something good to help someone, you feel what they felt and you see what they saw. And the only way to do this would be to record everything that's happening. It turns out we can do this within video games or we can actually record. Like if you played League of Legends or Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is a game where you're a first person shooter and you shoot people. Well, you can go to a different XYZ location of that person and you can see exactly what it was like. You can even put on a virtual reality headset and feel like you were actually there. So, you know, it, it turns out that the religions are telling us, you know, potentially, yes, there's a father figure, but there's also these other elements of it, which may be comforting, particularly if, you know, we go through rough situations or rough times to think that, okay, the suffering may be temporary, but perhaps uh, it's like a video game or a quest. Uh, or an achievement in a video game where you unlock these and you choose to go through some of these experiences. And even if you don't succeed the first time, you can play that same quest again and you can keep going. Um, so I think there are very many comforting aspects to this, which is why there's a uh, there's an overlap. Some people say uh, that uh, anyone who created the simulation, whether it's a single person, a creator, or it's a team of programmers, would look to us like supernatural beings because they'd have the power to not only watch the simulation, but also to affect things in the simulation and change variables within the simulation. I, I mean, this is this is fascinating. I suppose there are wide-reaching implications for the concepts of consciousness on its own here because I suppose even the most ardent, you know, atheist skeptics out there would concede that consciousness is very spooky. We don't know what we don't know yet we know it's something we don't know how it works we know we essentially assume it's a product of the brain uh what are the implications for human consciousness if we are part of the simulation well i think there's big implications for it and part of it depends on which version of the simulation hypothesis you subscribe to so i, I like to define it as a continuum and at one end of the spectrum is what's called the npc version of the simulation hypothesis and so NPC stands for non-player character. So if you're in a video game and there's a bartender or a bank teller or, you know, um, an orc that you're fighting, those are all, those are not controlled by real people, quote unquote, real people. They are just part of the game. So they're called NPCs within the game. Uh, and on the, the opposite end of the spectrum is what I call the RPG version or the role-playing game version. And in the R RPG version, you are you exist outside of the game and you control a character that you've identified with so closely that that is what you're role playing and so in the npc version everyone is just code and ai that's running in the simulation in the rpg version you exist outside and you are you are you are coming in you are descending into your avatar if you will and the reality is most video games have both of those 
right? They have NPCs and they have PCs or player characters. Uh, and so if you think of it in terms of the matrix, you might say Agent Smith uh, or the Oracle was an NPC. It was a program that ran. Whereas Neo and Trinity and Morpheus were, they were actually characters whose, who's, uh, you know, real lives were outside. And so the con- there's a lot of implications for consciousness. One, that the world is in fact being rendered, you know, for the players, right? So in the RPG version, it's, it's basically taking this idea that the world isn't real, but it gets rendered as you need it. Just like in a video game, like if you and I were in a video game together, you would see your part of the video game and I would see my part of the video game and it gets rendered. And this ties into the, the, the science of quantum mechanics uh, a bit, which, you know, if we have time, we can get into it, but we don't need to. Uh, and in the NPC version, it's closer to the materialistic view that everything arises from the brain, right? Because it's all self-contained within the simulation. So I think, you know, this, this idea is a very good way to think about different models of consciousness. I think you're muted, Stephen. It's a good job. You know what I'm doing, Rizwan. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think I think I've had this experience of being in a video game with close friends, and we've, due to a glitch or perhaps something else, we've had completely different visual experiences of what is happening at the same time. It can be quite quite strange. Uh, I suppose the big question in all of this is, um, or the big topic rather, is the the human desperation for the pursuit of eternal life and there are lots of ways humans have tried to pursue this and are still trying to pursue this from anti-aging techniques to cryogenics was a huge thing I've, I've interviewed somebody who's a proponent of cryogenics before and i think it looks very possible certainly that it would be uh, a thing that we could do in the future uh, uh, to download our consciousness onto some sort of, uh, you know, computer, hard drive, something like that. These are oversimplified terms I appreciate, but is that something that's potentially realistic in the near future? I think it is something. So I mentioned the 10 stages of technology we'd have to get to, to get to the simulation point. And stage nine is actually uh, about, or stage 10, actually the final stage is actually about downloadable consciousness. And so there's something called the connectome, which is viewed as the, uh, the, the particular configuration of the neurons of your brain. And there's a heck of a lot of neurons, uh, but not just the neurons, but how they're connected to each other. And so like at MIT, they've been able to map those the neurons of, say, a mouse's brain, which is much smaller than ours and has a lot less neurons and a lot less connections. And we haven't gotten to the point where we can map all of those uh, connections. But it is possible to, to map them. And that what that does is that gives you a person's experience at a moment in time, right? It's sort of like if you look at uh, Star Trek, right? If you ever watch Star Trek, where they have the transporter, right? Mm. They, they, what they do is they disassemble the atoms and then they reassemble the atoms. And well, every now and then you'll have like a transporter malfunction or you'll end up with two versions you know, of the person that were both copies from that point forward, um, right? Like uh, I think there was one with Commander Riker in Star Trek, The Next Generation, as an example, right? And so the question is, are they clones? What are they exactly? So I think it will be possible to download our consciousness and have that entity continue to have experiences uh, in the virtual world. There's a great Black Mirror episode uh, called uh, San Junipero, 
which is about this beach town, if you've seen that. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it turns out that some of the people who live in this town are residents and others are visitors who have on these, you know, these small devices. It's what we call a brain computer interface, which is stage seven of the road to simulation point. And they use it to visit. And while they're there, they, it feels like completely real, like they're inside, you know, this world. Uh, and then they can upload themselves uh, to that when they die. So the question is still, whether that's you or a version, I would say it's a version of you. And I think at some point we will be able to make copies. You know, if you think of chat GPT today, it's just pulling in a lot of information from the web and then it's kind of predicting what the next few words would be. And sometimes it does it really well, but a lot of times if you're an expert, you know it's not necessarily doing it well. And so there are folks who have tried to create a digital afterlife where they take all of your writings and postings and social media uh, and then they would... Uh, uh, basically, you know, have it respond as if it was you using a, a, a language model like ChatGPT. So you can envision that could get a lot better in the future. That's that's terrifying to think that social media output is being used as a template for that, given that's when everyone's clearly on their best behavior and putting forward their best self <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> Although, for instance. That's true. Although I just heard recently about... You know, the first generation whose baby pictures were shared on social media has now grown up. And so they're kind of embarrassed because all, you know, their parents put up, you know, little pictures of them in diapers and, you know, wandering around and stuff. But I think, you know, the, the idea came when uh, a person had a friend who died and they were trying to figure out how to, you know, have a conversation with them. And so they started to use their, their social media posts to do that. I'm not saying that's necessarily accurate, but if you mapped, if you added your digital output with an actual connectome of your brain, then you've gotten pretty close to both a snapshot in time, but also trying to predict how you might react to things, at least a virtual clone of you. You know, I, I again, I, I wouldn't subscribe to the same notion that that is you uh, necessarily. Uh, you know, we had a, a session at Arizona State University recently, uh, where I'm at now, and somebody asked the question, when will the first human live to be 150, right? And I said, well, I don't necessarily accept that premise because there are many stories of yogis in the Himalayas in India who have lived more than 150 years, right? They've done it with different techniques, but I guess the, tech, you know, the question is how can we, uh, those of us in the modern world live to that age? Well, you know, then you have to look at all these different technologies that you talked about. But I do think preserving somebody's knowledge in digital form uh, is, is something that will happen. Now it won't happen tomorrow. It's going to take maybe a decade or two, even three to get, to get really good at, at doing something like that. So this is a lot of information to fit into my head, obviously. And I'm just trying to get my head around this idea of replicating. I think you said a, was it a rat's brain, perhaps, due to the the neuron count. It's it's I'm not saying easy, of course, but it's it's far less complex than a human brain, which gives us better opportunity to replicate this. Now, how does that work in terms of a person's memory? I mean, it's uh, it, can everything we are or have experienced be boiled down to replicating our neurons or is there something in the in the wet matter there that's un unquantifiable that contains perhaps you know our childhood our experiences our fears our loves etc well it, it's it's something that i think science hasn't figured out yet right uh and so on the materialist side and the sort of the atheist side 
the answer is yes, right? All you need to do is replicate the, the, the neurons and the chemicals. And that is it, that, that is all the experiences. And on the more religious side, the idea is no, that's not enough. The body is something you shed and that there's a consciousness that goes uh, beyond that. So, you know, it matters a little bit who you ask. Now, if you look at, again, let's use today's technology as an example. So you look at something like ChatGPT, that is a large language model. But, and it can predict, you know, what might be the best next word, but it doesn't necessarily bring back full memories. It's been trained on a whole set of data. And so that is essentially based on neural networks and machine learning on, on the, the, those are the types of techniques to train. And then there's an output of the training, right? And so it's just the output. And in a sense, our neurons are like that. It's the output of all the experiences we've had. Right. And nobody knows exactly where memories are stored or how well they're stored. And as I said, when people have near death experiences, you know, they they see things that they don't even remember or they see them from other people's point of view. And so there is an argument to be made that perhaps our memories are not so localized simply to the brain, but that our brain is kind of our rendering device. So if you think of it in the computer, like with a character there's some information that's in memory and stored uh, on, on the server. And then there's others that's stored on a bigger hard drive. And some of those experiences are there. So it's possible there's a, another place that memories are stored, but we simply access it. Uh, and the brain is more like a tuning device. So it gets tuned based on experiences and it accesses this memory, which might be stored somewhere else. Uh, but we do know some experiences are stored in the brain because you can, you can, use, you can stimulate certain neurons and there's, for example, you know, the Julia Roberts neuron, right? So if, it, if there was like an experiment where they really, they figured out that, you know, if, if you're watching a movie with Julia Roberts and you watch the neurons, you could go back and stimulate that neuron and you would have a similar memory, right? And this is still in its very early stages though. So I, none of this is definite in my opinion. Yeah, neuroscience is still in its infancy, but I'm very interested to see where it goes and what we find out. But I've really enjoyed this conversation. I could have Carry on speaking to you for hours and hours about this, and I'll definitely pick up a copy of your book. Maybe you can just remind our viewers uh, where they can find your book, the name of your book, and where else they can find some of your output. Sure. So uh, the, the, the main book about this topic is called The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, uh, and Eastern mystics agree we are in a video game. And then my website is zenentrepreneur.com. Uh, zenentrepreneur.com and they can follow me on twitter at riz stanford like the university s-t-a-n-f-o-r-d rizwan thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming on and speaking to us thanks so much for having me on it's been fun our pleasure i will be checking out that book for sure uh or maybe i don't have any choice maybe our simulation running overlords uh will decide for me uh, I shall be bringing in our next guest now. Uh, Christopher, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as could be expected. <laughs> oh, okay. Anything you want to share with us? Oh, there's so many things to share. I was really interested in uh, what your last guest, I only caught the last few minutes of it, was saying, um, because some of my experiences suggests to me that that's part of what it is 
um, it's a simulation or something in a cosmic computer or something like that. You know, I mean, depends how much people know about me, but. Well, maybe just maybe that's a good place to yeah, start before we get your thoughts. Start, yeah. I mean, maybe sorry, we haven't ahead. got much time, so I want to try and get yes. in the important bit. Think of it like a speed date. Christopher, mm. we've both got to got to work through this together. So yeah. maybe you can just tell our audience yeah. uh, uh, what it is you do. Yeah. So what what I do is I dream things that are going to happen in the future, uh, and it all started over. Well, 1986 is when it started big time. I dreamt of Chernobyl. Going to say probably Chernobyl. Yeah. Yep, Chernobyl, uh, and I told a few people uh, about that and it happened uh and more and more people heard more and more of my stories over the next well 86 to end of 88 uh and i got or i had at that time lots of contacts in scotland yard and other places in intelligence uh and i would often tell them what's going to happen uh, and we often scratched our heads and wondered. But on December the 21st, 1988, uh, I woke up that morning and I'd had the scariest dream I'd had up to that point. Uh, and that was that um, some terrorists had placed a bomb on a plane at Heathrow Airport. Uh, and that night the plane takes off and it blows up and kills everyone. Uh, and I actually made a statement to that effect uh, with two officers from Scotland Yard at that lunchtime. Is this on uh, record somewhere? Did they did they well, record they, it officially? They, they recorded it officially. <laughs> right. Uh, you want to see what happens next? Because uh, Lockerbie blew up that night. Okay. I so, mean, just to just to go back to Chernobyl in '86. Mm. What what exactly did you dream? I dreamt of a nuclear explosion somewhere to the east um, in Europe hmm. uh, and that the radioactive cloud blew right around the world. So I'm, I'm guessing that, or I mean, I'm assuming you can correct me, that not every dream you have is oh, no. a premonition of sorts. So no. what what's the difference between something very spooky and interesting going on here versus mere coincidence how it makes you feel when you're dreaming it um D describe that for me okay so you feel fear you see the explosion it's almost as if you're there with it it's like being in his computer game um, you know, you are experiencing the blast, the warmth, the, you know, it's like it's real. Where lots of other dreams, you, they just happen. You don't really have a profound impact from them. I, suppose, I, mean, I, think, I think many of us may have had that experience of sheer terror in a dream. Mm. I've woke up crying from a dream where I've lost a loved one. It was so real and tangible, but then everything was okay. Is, I mean, is it not say something about the capacity of the human mind uh, to create such intense emotions in us? No, there's much more to it than that. Um, and I'm living through a dream at the moment that I hope doesn't come true. Um, so no, so after 
I mean, Sorry, when... just I can't can't just leave that thread dangling. <laughs> there. What 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 dream are we talking about at the moment? Okay, so, your, your fifth love. so just before my granddaughter was born, I woke up crying, uh, and I was holding her, and she and she was dead, uh, and the voice in the dream said, "Christopher, at least she was loved for the short time she was with you." A month ago, we were told she's got cancer, and today they recommended a hospice. Okay, so yeah, she's not I'm, two years old yet. I'm sorry to hear that. that that's that's no, no, terrible. But that's, and, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, and I hope she gets the, the care she deserves yeah. for sure. And it's the one dream I hope doesn't come true. You know, okay. it's one of those that I really hope doesn't come true. Uh, and you know, we're we're kind of stuck in it. There's a whole story around that, and whichever way it goes, I'm going to write a book well, a chapter of a book or an article around the whole thing, because the whole thing was very, very extraordinary from the time of conception to the time where we're at today. Um, okay. Well, that's that's obviously something very deeply personal to you. Yeah. And I, I wish been, you the best, best yeah, outcome. There's, yeah. there's I mean, just been to bring it, things, you know. Well, I mean, sure. Um, I mean, it, it seems to, from what you're saying, it seems to map on a lot to very, very high-profile topical events from Chernobyl, Lockerbie. At the minute, we've got 9 this... 9-11, all those other things that I predicted. Okay, so, I mean, at the minute, we've got this uh, crisis playing out across the media in the news about this submarine uh we've been sent the uh, questions come in uh, have you had any dreams about this submarine I haven't. you haven't no no okay for the last for, i'll be honest for the last month since we were told my granddaughter's has got cancer um everything that i've dreamt about has been revolving around that so i okay. haven't had anything about this um this you know, this I don't know, what do you call it, a submarine? It's not really a submarine, it's really is in the sense that we understand them. But this, you know, craft that they've gone down in. But I really haven't had anything about that. Okay. Um, I am watching what's going on um, in um, Ukraine. Uh, and my feeling is uh, at the moment that how that ends uh, is that Russia keeps the east side of the Dnipro River. But that's all I've got with that. I haven't seen any nukes go off. I've been tweeting that I'm not seeing nukes going off since it started. Well, uh, what is it? I mean, I mean, if yeah. we look at the entire materialistic, you know, biological aspects of this, we're all great apes. They're, they're our ancestors and we all have this human brain and it seems very much tethered to the laws of nature. And it seems what you're saying is for some reason in your life, these laws of nature are temporarily being suspended so you can have a, a peek into the future at very topical events. Mm. And so, I mean, what, what would explain that to you? Why would that happen? In well, your first mind? of all, first of all, I'm going to say it isn't just my life because people contact me from all over the world and have done for about, well, 35 years since, you know, I've been out there and people have known about me giving me the instances in their lives. So this is much more common than you think it is. Um, I mean, there are, I don't know, there are 20 or 30 documentaries on YouTube, and there's lots more that never got to YouTube, where the police were interviewed and they've talked about what we did and how we did it. You know, so th th there is something about reality that isn't what we think it is. Uh, I mean, very early on after... Um, well, it, I think it was probably might have been 1991. Um, 
the police were monitoring me very closely uh, and we were working together on cases uh, and I was in an aeroplane in a dream and I was reporting everything to the police station that I dreamt every day uh, and that went on for years and years and years. In fact, it went on pretty much right up till 9-11 uh, when I started working with people in America. But I was in an aeroplane uh, and we are taking off and it's a small RAF plane. I didn't know what kind of a plane it was, a jet. Uh, and we climbed up in this dream. And as we went through about a thousand feet, I think, there was a buzzer and the captain shouted, flame out, engine flame out, we're going in. And the next thing I know in the dream, I'm on the ground in a main road. I think that we were very close to a roundabout uh, and I'm still me, but they're all dead uh, and they can talk to me. Uh, and I spoke to the guy that was sitting in the jump seat, uh, probably a navigator or something like that. And I said to him, what happened? And he said, the engines flamed out. And I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Stephen Wilkinson. I said, what's the names of your cope, you know, flight crew? And he said, I'm not allowed to tell you that, but I'll give you a clue. Their father built the runway. Now, I had discussions with a chief inspector at police about this dream. Uh, I think they did some checks with the RAF and things. Uh, and about a week later, a Canberra bomber crashed onto the main, I think it's A141 or A142, um, at Witten. The pilot was, oh, I'll say a bit more before I do that. Um, Chief Inspector Hall, who I was reporting this to, said, what does it mean their father built the runway? I said, well, the runway's tarmac. I said, so I will accept Mac or Macadam or Adam or something like that. That's very cryptic, isn't it? Very cryptic. Well, Stephen Wilkinson died in the crash. Robert McKendrick was a pilot and the other one was Flight Lieutenant Adams. Is, I mean, so think about the, that. Just sure. Think the, I, the coincidence. Yeah, I mean... Yes. How, if I admit, how useful is this information to you if it doesn't seem to be able to prevent anything? And obviously, we're hearing these experiences from you after the fact. Does, well, it, does it seem like they've been well documented before in order for well, us to... You haven't looked them. You haven't looked then. Where, where could we look? more where documentation could... about me than probably any other person doing this on the planet. Where could we look for that? Well, you can look on YouTube. You can go to Dream Detective 51 or Dream it, Detective 1 and you'll find at least, I don't know, 20 documentaries. Sure, but I, the, these are these are documents of you no, just no, repeating no, no, these no, claims. No, no. So, these, no, no, these no, no. so these documentaries include you making these predictions before the fact. Yes. The Arizona In experiments were designed between myself and a professor at the University of Arizona in 2001 because i predicted were well 9-11 i'd seen the planes crash into the world trade center and i was invited to go to america 
and conduct experiments to see just what you could do with this. Now, there are the Arizona experiments. The professor who did them wrote a book called The God Experiments about the experiments. And what I had to do is I had to dream about the defining characteristics of locations I would be taken to for 10 consecutive days at some point later in 2001. And we talked about this in March. I got to Arizona in August. And the experiments, the actual video recordings of the experiments are on YouTube. The scientific study that the professor wrote is available. And he wrote a book about them called The God Experiments. And there are interviews with him. So this isn't some kind of a fairy story that you can't stand up. First time I did it, Richard and Judy show. They said to me, can you give us some kind of a demonstration? And I thought, well, let's try something. I've never done it before. I said, put something in a box. And when I get to the studio, I'll tell you what my dream says is in there. That clips on YouTube as well. There is so much information about me. It's, you know, it'll probably take you a month to watch it all. But so, for instance, someone like Darren Brown could do something like that. And he's openly adamant that psychic ability is not a thing. He's using tricks, standard tricks as well. So I think I'm I'm trying to look at something a bit more conclusive. And just going back to these Arizona experiments, and you 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 sort of claim to have had a premonition of nine. Well, it's more than a claim. It was a scientifically recorded study. Tell me about prior, that. What, what was prior, scientific? So, Sorry, if I just might get my question out. Yeah. What what was the scientific study that documented relevant That's, aspects of nine eleven? What what exactly did you? Come nothing up with? to do with nine eleven. It was to prove I was really seeing things in the future. It how would one How would one prove that? Easy. You take me to a location at some time in the future, and I already know where you're going to take me, even before they have been randomly selected. And in the Arizona experiments, the professor of psychology at the Arizona University of Arizona, Professor Gary Schwartz, while I was on the plane to America, and bearing in mind I've got all these notes already written, um, he selected 20 places that were possible to visit. We were going to visit 10. He sent those 20 places, one place typed on an envelope, 20 envelopes to a magician in California because he wanted to make sure there was nothing like Darren Brown or anything else going on. And the magician was asked to give the to give the envelopes to somebody else that even Schwartz didn't know. So every morning when we were on an experiment day, he would come to the hotel. We would record and copy an interview with me and go through the notes for the dream for that day. Once that was all sealed and recorded at the university, he would then phone the magician. The magician then contacted whoever it was he contacted to open the first envelope. So he opened an envelope and we were, well, Schwartz was told where to take me. I wasn't told where I was going till I got there. Those videos are all there. 
that's i think why i got involved with the nsa and the cia and they've even confirmed in interviews that my ability is unique and i disagree with that it's not unique because i find people or people find me all the time who experience this so i'm not cynical i take things when somebody says something at least on face value until there is a reason not to i mean how did i find bin laden tell me that i'm not aware that you did well speak to the man i worked with at the nsa thomas a drake get him on your show he was a sorry. senior executive at the national security agency sorry just, sorry if i may sorry i may just have to pick no. up on that point because the the operation to locate bin laden i don't care what they told you is, i don't but, care what they told. but the difference is he people who spent months years trying to locate Bin Laden, his compound, sorry if I just might finish this point, have provided us with bounds of objective evidence we can corroborate ourselves. You say yes. you know a guy that says you found Bin Laden? Thomas A. Drake was a senior executive at the National Security Agency. He tasked me in November 2008 to try and dream the location of Bin Laden. And my response to him was... If he is still alive, he is in a place called Abbottabad in Pakistan, which is where he was. Now, I don't know the chain of events after me telling him that. Because of that, did they look in that area? I don't know. You need to ask him. But I can tell you that in November 2008, I reported to him, very senior executive at the NSA, what Bin Laden answer to the dream question was. I suppose then. I mean, if you're if you're if you're dreaming locations, I'm assuming you've never visited this compound. How how would you how would you possibly know where it was? I'm assuming you don't speak Arabic. No, you don't need to. In these dreams, you don't need to. People in foreign who can't speak it's English. Like some sort of mystical GPS going on. Well, who knows? I mean, GPS is used anyway in remote viewing by the CIA and other people to locate all sorts of things. Sure. That's not unusual. Uh, there's an organization in America which only tasks people for GPS coordinates for bodies of, you know, or missing people. So, so just the last thing, not, last thing on this. Not uh, unusual, honestly, this is a very real thing happening every day and people want to make fun of it. And it's real. Not sure. everybody is good at it, but it's real. And I don't care what magicians say, you know, it's, so what? That's okay. Well, sorry, just to, just to interject on this oh, Bin Laden point, because you, you said you revealed the location of Bin Laden in, in 2008. Sorry, I just need to finish. Told. If I just may finish my question. And you revealed this to a senior person within the intelligence agencies in America. Mm. I assume there are no documents that you can provide of this to demonstrate. I wouldn't provide... keep documents like that. Sure. Anyway. Okay. I work with intelligence people since the 70s on various things and documents like that you don't keep. Right. So, I mean, on the face of it, it, it looks like you don't you have any evidence for these these massive claims that you're making. All, you, all we have is your word and, and the word of someone else. You know, all we have is my word and you don't want to check it out with the man I told. That's but that, that would be 
doesn't matter. Your word and, and his word. So that's two anecdotes, so, really, so, for, the, for such as an extraordinary claim. So typically evidence would comprise of something slightly more objective than the word of two people, especially when the claims become so extraordinary as some sort of <laughs> mystical GPS prediction of bin Laden's location. Wasn't the GPS? In, in, a, in a Pakistani um, compound. A map with a Botabad written on it. There was no GPS connection to that at all. I went to sleep and I saw a map and I zoomed in on it in the dream and there it was written a Botabad. So bin, bin Laden was here. In, no, in no. The question was, where is he? And my response was verbatim this. If he is still alive, if he is in a Botabad in Pakistan, and there's been another hundreds of things similar, but Bin Laden was the, the biggest one for me. I mean, but there's lots of other times we worked on things and lots of other people do this and people don't believe it. It doesn't matter to me, does it, if they believe it or not? Surely, I, you, I mean, surely you can understand. Surely you can understand why people are slightly sceptical of these claims, given what's offered up to support them. Well, you know, people have poo-pooed UFOs and things like that you know i saw my first unusual object in the sky in august 1971 and i've got the newspaper cuttings for that i suppose it comes down to a way of thinking then i mean just to get a, a ballpark of the kind of things you accept i mean obviously we've got premonition psychic abilities ufo sightings i mean mm. i mean at what point do you sort of draw the line and say actually i pref i'd prefer to have a bit more information or evidence say you know bigfoot people claiming to be reincarnated as elvis mermaids <laughs> yeah. loch ness monster i mean so we, we've got you laughing at mermaids i think no I, but I, people I, will claim to have seen them i don't know if there are mermaids i've never seen one if you ask me do i believe in such things i probably don't Okay. You know, and, and I accept that Elvis is dead. But, <laughs> I draw the line there, actually. Yeah, yeah thank I you. accept that. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news. You didn't dream so, about that beforehand? No, I wasn't dreaming stuff in 1977. At all? Oh, you mean premonitions? No, no. Didn't, don't remember any dreams before 86. Don't remember okay. dreaming anything before then. Are you somebody who offers up services in a way do you speak to people and perhaps offer them a reading no. or life advice nothing like that um people do contact me in various ways to talk about their dreams more than anything else do you do you charge for this services as a professional relationship in any way um i always say to people give me what you think it was worth if you think it was because i have bills to pay just like let me just get this spider out of the way just like everybody else but no i don't have a fee or no never have done never okay. have done. so um is there anything you can sort of offer us up now as maybe we could do some sort of uh documented objective experiment here where you can talk to us about something that you might be able to predict and then we can compare notes in the future is anything it you can offer work, us up? It, first of all it wouldn't work like that why not it wouldn't work like that because you need to set out a task and you know i would need to then go to bed and dream about it go and i suggest if people don't believe me go and look at the television shows where i've done dreaming what's in the box live on tv 30 years ago 
less long sound longer. like a magic trick though doesn't it with boxes well, as well i mean that's up to them what they believe okay honestly i really i have no interest in convincing anybody that doesn't want to believe it but what i know there will be and that's probably why i even came on your show is there will be people out there that have had these experiences they've been ridiculed and upset and you know wound up uh, and they've thought that they're going crazy and they might listen to this and think you know what that happens to me all the time and i get people like that all the time Somebody. and i've done lots of experiments i mean I, I did 20 years of experiments with the police and I'm, we haven't got time here to go into them but if people want to read the dream detective book published in 96 they can find it and if they want to read Premonition, which is the latest, The Premonition Man, which is the latest book. So I suppose it did. I mean, I think with the issue a, a lot. Sorry if I just may get this point out, because no, I no. think people have a different standard of what they consider an experiment. Many would say that it, it involves hypotheses, conclusions, no. peer review. No. It's just uh, showed your limited understanding of what I've been doing for 35 years and why so many police officers and other people have come forward and said we can't understand how he does this but he does it there are so many crimes that i've been able to get useful information on just by going to bed okay i mean do, do you, would you concede there are people who are frauds in this area who pretend uh, to know 99 percent of them can't how how can we spot can. how can we spot a fraud from the real deal then i mean yori geller for instance claims to do similar things to you he's dabbled in crime work on occasion to disastrous effects unfortunately i mean how can we decide whether you're is genuine you're not you are you're is how, how do we weigh do this up if we on research the, the material that is available out there on me and make your mind up honestly i don't mind whether people laugh at it because the people that i've worked with at the highest levels in government in this country and other countries and in the united states working on real cases know this is a phenomena we can't explain it but we know it's real but if we were to run this through the logic or the logical fallacies what what would point out to many people who are on the fence or skeptical is that a lot of this relies on anecdote uh, appeal let to authority which let is, them stay on the fence let them stay on the fence so you, you're not you've no intention of trying to convince people I haven't tried to convince people since 9-11. People have come to me and I've worked with them on different cases, hundreds of them. But I'm not trying to convince them. We're trying to get a result. We're trying to find that missing person, that the bodies of those missing children, things like that. Uh, and the successes are recorded with the police and I don't make a thing about it. I don't go around telling people, found these, did that, did that. I don't, you know, what I did do is do the Arizona experiments in 2001, which everybody can see and they can make their mind up. You know, I mean, they could say, yeah, well, the professor cheated and the magician cheated and whoever he gave it to, they cheated as well. Well, I mean, again, the you know, Arizona experiments. Sorry, if I, just, if I might. I will certainly look into that because it sounds fascinating regardless of what people believe. But in terms of the Arizona experiments, is this an experiment in the sense that this is peer-reviewed information? Because it seems to me like if you were to scientifically prove the 
existence of psychic ability. This would be Nobel Prize you, winning well, This is what you would think. And this is what I've always thought. You would think so, wouldn't you? But you see, the evidence for unexplained things in the sky is still only just being dripped out to us. You know, I mean, I've I've only seen three things in the sky that behaved in ways that I would consider were beyond physics. I've seen three things that didn't fit with my limited understanding of physics. And the first one was in August 1971. The second one was in October. And that one was recorded by a television film crew in Oxfordshire. And that was broadcast on television. Uh, and I saw an object go from pretty much north to south, right across the sky in three seconds, as fast as I could turn my head. Okay, Chris. Well, I think I think you those are a whole new yeah. kind of worms which we could we could take another half. Let an me hour. tell you, I, I think if you honestly look at some of my stuff, you'll start to think, do you know what? He might just be telling the truth. Okay. Well, I, I've enjoyed speaking to you. Regardless, yeah, if we seem uh, far apart on this, and I wish you all the best uh, with yeah. your granddaughter uh, as yeah. well. Maybe you can just tell me, uh, to tell the audience rather, where they can find uh, more of your content. Well, if they go to YouTube, there's lots of stuff. Thepremonitionman.com has built up. It's not, I didn't write the book about me. Other people did, but they've got a playlist on there. So www.thepremonitionman.com. That's stuff on there. Uh, it's not my website. I don't control it. Uh, it's controlled by other people uh, who wrote the book about me. Um, there's Dream Detective 51 on youtube that's got some of my television shows where we did what's in the box with richard and judy and other things you know and, and they're going back into the 90s you know like 30 years ago all right chris well, we, we're just thank out of time i'm afraid all right. and, uh, thankfully go. all those links are in the the chat there so people can go and check yeah. them out but thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure okay pleasure too bye all the best. the clairvoyant narcissist is where you can't actually see it immediately and you would have to enter a relationship with this some this person and be in a relationship with them for some time to start to realize that actually something is not right here so that might be a number of months and you have your first argument and in that argument you realize that your feelings do not matter at all and then you might see things like gaslighting and um and they might be quite manipulative now it depends on your character and your personality as to whether you're going to identify that actually this is you know there's something wrong with this individual and it's not you and usually the complication with these relationships is that if they're a parent of yours or if they're a romantic partner you're already emotionally involved so therefore actually questioning being able to step back and be like there's actually something not great with this person in terms of how they operate in terms of empathy so often people get kind of reeled into these relationships and then they're in them and it's too late and then they already are very confused and, and often narcissists will gravitate towards high empaths and then people who are highly empathic will always question their own behavior because they're prepared to look at their own behavior. And that's where it's really painful for people to be involved with narcissists. Now, um, if you, you could have a friendship or a loose connection or acquaintanceship with a narcissist for a really long time and be just fine because as long as you don't get too close, you can kind of, you know, keep that 
relationship working as long as the relationship serves them well. So therefore, you know, if everything's nice and sweet and it's um, an advantage to them to, to know you and, you know, it's kind of favorable for them, they might treat you quite well and everything might be, might be fine. Um, so people can function quite well in the workplace in relation to being a narcissist as long as you're in their good books. So earlier on, you said that, you know, he did this horrible thing to Kerry Katona, who's been on the channel as well. And mm. she's a lovely, lovely, humorous woman. We had a great laugh with her. What benefit does he achieve from making her suffer like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, poor Kerry. She's such a sweet soul, such a kind person. The world needs more Kerry Katona. It's like she, <laughs> she just uses empathy. And, um, you know, and that's quite apparent, um, you know, when I listen to her speak and, and stuff. It's really apparent how empathic she is. But she was very young and vulnerable when um, they did that interview. And he spoke like as if he was a concerned parent now i don't looking back on that interview i don't think that she was slurring her speech at all and um and you know he jumps on that and tries to make himself look very good in that moment probably just trying to make himself look like the best most talented presenter or perhaps trying to make news headlines but it wasn't the right thing to do because it was a very self-centered action um if someone was slurring their speech and if they really if a presenter really has concerns that they might be drunk or something like that on tv then you look after that person's emotions, don't make a big deal out of it, just keep keep the conversation going so that that person is not embarrassed because an empath is going to worry about if someone is going, they're interviewing is going to be embarrassed or not. So he didn't look after her at all in those moments. So are you saying that when Schofield put down Kerry Katona, it was to make him feel better about himself? And if so, is that rooted in insecurity? It was either to make himself um feel better about himself or to big himself up and yeah, promote himself so uh, a pr stunt or or just to try and impress the audience um and that is rooted in insecurity um because actually secure people don't need to do that they don't need to um do behaviors or tactics and in, in social situations in order to make them feel better about themselves or look better or or be completely in control because it was quite a controlling act as well so the fact that he was living all of these double lives, he was, you know, lying to his wife, and it was like there was lies embedded within lies, yet he was on TV for decades getting away with all of these things. What personality traits are necessary for him to achieve that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, if someone was to ask me, is he a psychopath, I would say no, because he actually took responsibility in his life. He turned up to work when he was supposed to. And, um, you know, he was able to be, he was able to maintain a life that functioned. Um, so I wouldn't say he's a, a psychopath, but I would say that he's an incredibly self-centered person. And, um, you know, to maintain a marriage for that length of time without actually disclosing your sexuality, I think when he came out as being gay, I think, what I would have liked to see is a lot more questions being asked, such as how did you how did you function in your relationship with your with your wife in order to be able to make a marriage be sustained? How were you able to um, establish the physical side of thing of the marriage in order to sustain that relationship? You know, were you having to kind of fantasize in physical moments with your wife in order to be able to keep that lie going? I I have a lot more questions as to how he made that work and I, I think what was really unfortunate is people didn't really 
question the lies and the manipulation that he must have had to do in that marriage to stain the marriage and um and it was really brushed over in the media it was like oh okay you're getting no problem yeah you've got a wife you've had a wife for a really long time sure no no more questions to ask here well done for coming out as gay and um there must have been a lot of lies and manipulation in the marriage to be able to um you know because he's come out as gay he's not come out as bisexual so um so really he uh he did leave um Leave, live a false life for a very long time. So, is it inevitable that someone like in in his position will ultimately crash and burn? Because Savile got away with a lot of things, didn't he? And he perhaps had some of the same traits. Well, I think one of the problems here is that we don't actually have the evidence that Philip Schofield has committed crimes against children. I think this is my problem with the coverage that it's got in the media. Obviously, it's got an extraordinary amount of media coverage and I am genuinely concerned for his mental health because of that obviously he said he's suicidal and he didn't look good on camera and it looked quite manipulative when he was saying this but actually what we know really happens when someone has um, their career taken away from them um, to an extent like this where actually a lot of their identity must be wrapped up in their career that people do commit to become very suicidal and commit suicide as a result so I think that um you know, I think that part was kind of genuine. I think comparing him to um, to Savile is is an assumption because actually, okay, we have evidence that does not look good. We have evidence of him in a restaurant with a 15-year-old boy and then he later goes on to have an, uh, an intimate relationship with this boy when, uh, when he becomes an adult. It doesn't look good, but is it actually evidence that he commits crimes against children? No, we've actually... We jumped the gun there. We've made a huge assumption, although it looks horrific. Um, you would like to think that a reasonable person, if they've known someone when they're a child, that actually they remember that person being a child and therefore they don't enter into any kind of relationship with them in the future. That's not how narcissists work. They, they're very selfish when it comes to physical acts um, of intimacy. They, they focus on their own needs and themselves. But do I think that Philip Schofield has committed any crimes against children? I would like everyone to just wait and see because there haven't been more reports coming out from other people. So I think we need to kind of leave it at, okay, he's been you know, terrible to his wife. He's been terrible to some of the people that he's interviewed, but let's not make assumptions about him committing crimes that we just don't have the full evidence about so far. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. There are no crimes against him. He's not been charged with any crimes and everything is alleged and we need to make that clear for these videos um my reference to savile was perhaps to just about the deceit and the both of them living double lives but even even though there were no crimes the fact that he's admitted you know to meet meeting a kid in the school i mean i, I do schools talks all the time and they give us um safeguarding rules when you go in you know, you're not allowed to have any communication, give them your email address, give them phone numbers. There's always got to be a contact teacher around you. The fact that it went from him meeting this kid in the school, then we saw the video in the restaurant where the age gap looked really disturbing. Have you, have you seen that video, the, the 1 million subscriber video? Yeah. Um, so even though he's not been charged with anything, you know, there's a word for people who manipulate young people into doing things when they get older. 
and that's it's still a, a serious allegation it's a serious allegation but we have to consider all angles here so there's two possibilities there's one that he manipulated someone and then at the earliest opportunity pounced and um and was quite predatory in that way and then there's the other scenario which is actually he was asked to uh mentor this person or give him give some advice because he wanted to get into into tv which could happen you know anyone in any career like i could be approached and ask um to uh, to give advice to someone who wants to get into, into psychology and, and you know if it's a young person of course i'm, I'm going to do that would i then go on to develop a relationship with him in the future absolutely not because i hold those memories of i knew them as a child and there's something very very wrong about this narcissists don't operate in that way they don't hold those memories and look back and go would this be a bit inappropriate because actually i remember them as a child and this feels very wrong and there's a huge age gap and i'm in a position of power narcissists do not operate like that they don't update their you know their brain to have the empathy side of like is this right is this wrong um and i think in in schofield's mind he might have operated within the law and thought you know is it legal is it not legal and um and that might have been all there was rather than wait i knew him as a child there's something you know that feels very funny about this so um he may have stayed within the law um also we kind of have to remember that you know he was in the public eye and in terms of him wanting to form relationships that's probably going to have only happen with very trusted people he is in the public eye so he has to be quite calculated with who he decides to form relationships with it's going to be most likely someone at work uh do i think it was a good idea you know that it was it was someone so much younger i think it's um it doesn't you know it doesn't look good um and i think the information that we kind of need to know in the future before we we make really solid conclusions is was it legal or was it not okay so looking at the root cause of these disorders nature versus nurture in the same home as him, we've got his brother who ended up getting convicted of crimes against a kid. So would there be a commonality of factors at work on both of the brothers that could have created, shaped their personalities in a certain way? Yeah, okay. So let's just say Philip Schofield goes on to be um, convicted of committing crimes against children. Then we can start to look at, okay, two people in one family where that's happened, what kind of violence um, and, you know, or, uh, abuse were they um, sub subjected to as children? And, um, you know, and that would lead me to, to think that actually there's something in their upbringing that must have fed into this. On the other hand, um, the fact that his brother was actually convicted about, of committing crimes against children might have fed into this narrative of people going, and he's one too. He's doing the, he's done the exact same thing and perhaps that's why the media has jumped on this in the way that they have because they're using that as evidence when it's actually not solid evidence um so i think again we, we kind of need to know what's going to happen in the future in order to to make a conclusion but um if there's two people in the family who commit crimes against children i would assume a very very harsh upbringing and um unfortunately we don't really know that much information about philip schofield's upbringing um he didn't i, I know a little bit of information from school and he didn't present as a neglected looking child and he didn't act like an angry child he was just very fame hungry from a young age um is what is being reported what factors would one imagine then would have happened to create a covert narcissist is it trauma 
Yeah. So um, that's a really good question. So part of it is personality. So there is definitely a nature element because you can have two people who have the exact same parenting and one ends up being a COVID narcissist and the other ends up being actually a very empathic person. Um, but there has to be trauma there to feed into narcissism. Otherwise, the person's just not going to operate in that way. Um, there has to be an upbringing that was not ideal for that individual. So it might just be severe um, childhood emotional neglect. Uh, it might be um, abuse. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in childhood that would feed into that, but there's definitely going to be something that w- wasn't ideal in their parenting. Um, and then that will lead to people not being able to develop emotionally. And the reason they don't develop emotionally is because no one attends their emotions in that kind of upbringing. No one is hugging them when they're crying. No one is helping them soothe themselves when they when they experience a lot of emotional pain. So they don't learn to feel empathy for themselves and therefore they don't go on to be able to feel empathy for other people. And is it a condition that therapy can mitigate? If someone really wants to change and they're really motivated and they have traits of narcissism and they really want to do the work, we can see change. It's very tough. Um, You know, it's really difficult. The problem is that a lot of narcissists won't turn up to therapy and do the work. Often when we see narcissists in the therapy room is when their relationship has broken down and the relationship, you know, their partner has left them and they cannot handled the distress of being abandoned and that abandonment causes them so much pain that they're like okay I'll, I'll do therapy and they turn up and then they use the therapeutic space as a, a stage where they just brag about the affairs that they've had and, and stuff like that but if someone has narcissistic traits but it's not too severe and they're really motivated to change we actually we can see some change in people and I think the important thing to actually mention is that narcissists really suffer they suffer far more than people kind of want to give, you know, want to recognize. And we really need to have empathy for narcissists. So we can't just like label them as really bad and just think, you know, they're horrible and they won't change. They suffer so much. And, um, you know, there's a lot of internal pain that we don't see. And they're not good at art- articulating this internal pain because they experience so much shame. They hide away and they try and deal with this shame, discomfort, and horrible emotions themselves. So we don't see how much narcissists suffer. So a message I like to put out there for everyone is try to have empathy for narcissists. Like you don't have to have close (laughs) relationships with them because that can be very harmful for you, but at least have compassion for their upbringing and how much they struggled and how much they didn't get their needs met in childhood. Got a question from some of the viewers have come in, one from Ron. Can trauma later in life cause an adult to become a narcissist? No, we don't see that. We tend, it's the ages of zero to five years old where most of the development is happening, where people can um, go on to become a narcissist. There might be some significant trauma maybe in teenage years, but when someone has reached adult years, you're not going to be able to experience significant trauma that would cause a personality disorder. It would cause uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it would cause anxiety. It would cause depression. It would cause lots of dysfunction in that way. Um, but actually, you're not going to see a personality disorder develop from trauma in adulthood. So from zero to five years old, it's, it's, it goes back that far. And that is the the bulk of what causes it. Yeah, it's really the early developmental years that we're looking at here. I'm always very interested in what happened when someone is trying to 
leave childhood and enter adulthood as well. So I'm very interested in the ages of around 13, 14, 15, because uh, some significant influence is going to be happening at this point as well. Um, and and usually teenagers are trying out all the personality disorders until they decide who they really are. So I wouldn't be concerned <laughs> if a teenager is acting quite narcissistic. It's, it's quite normal. It's just one of the uh, outfits of personality they try on at that age. But um, but actually, what we're interested in is is early childhood here. Next question is from Holly. Are narcissists capable of co-parenting? It's really hard. It's a great question. It's really hard. Um, you have to. You can't really be yourself with a narcissist when you're co-parenting them. You have to tell them that they're amazing and you know keep limited contact and never criticize them and stay out of arguments with them. Um, so it's best to keep contact limited because otherwise it's going to be very painful because um, they're not going to see your perspective. They're not going to care about your feelings. They're not, it's very going to be very hard for you to get them on board to co-parent in a consistent way. Um, and that's, you know, that's really important for co-parenting. You want to be on board. You want to give the same messages to your children. Um, so it's really tough. And actually just telling them what they want to hear is, is much better keeping it very simple. I'm not, I'm not saying manipulate the narcissist because that, you know that's that's not how you, what you want to do but you definitely don't want to start arguments with them and you don't want to start expressing how their behavior has impacted you because it's going to fall on deaf ears next question is from alphabet if it's a condition how do we treat it yeah that's a really good question um it's um it takes motivation from the individual if they really want to change then you know we can definitely help them there's a lot of the behavioral stuff that we can help them with because actually they most narcissists um a lot of them have a lot of, aware, of awareness particularly the ones with high intellect so they can recognize the bad behaviors and they know how destructive it is and they know how much pain it causes and actually you can work with narcissists to try and help mitigate those behaviors and what you see is their if, if they really want to work on themselves their behaviors get better and then they cause a lot less pain and, um, and then you can, can sustain friendships with people to a certain level as long as they're committed to not engaging in manipulative behaviors, behaviors that really hurt other people. Um, their selfish tendencies are quite static and that's this hard, it's hard to achieve change there because actually helping them develop empathy is, is nearly impossible. Wow. Timothy is it's just a comment, but let's see if you can you can add something to this. We can have empathy for narcissists, but we need to protect ourselves at all costs as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you can you can have empathy for narcissists. They've had a tough life. They've been through tough things, and they suffer all the time. So you know, please have empathy for them. We should have empathy and respect for all humans. But do you need to jump into bed with them? No. Uh, you know, do you need to be close to them? No. And um, you know protect yourself because if you look after number one first then you can do great things in the world and you can really look after other people but sadly it's too painful to have close relationships with many of them um so superficial you know friendships acquaintanceships are absolutely fine as long as they're not mistreating you okay now we've got a question here from number 11 um why tiptoe around these narcissists maybe if everybody called out their behaviors they would stop acting out so you said that they specialized in manipulating people so if you're aware of the manipulation and you call the narcissist out what would happen 
yeah, that's not that's not going to go down well because actually giving them any <laughs> feedback about how their behavior is not appropriate or how their behavior impacts you, it's um, you're then entering into a conversation that is too painful for them to experience because it might experience them um, shame for them, and also in that moment they have to recognize that they're not perfect because they maintain their self-image by believing that they're perfect and better than other people because that's the keeping the low self-esteem at bay and not not delving into that but actually when people know they're not perfect and they see their flaws and see their faults that means they're not a narcissist so you can talk to anyone who's not a narcissist about how their behavior impacts you and you're gonna you might get somewhere if that that person cares about the relationship depending on their own development but if you try and approach a narcissist about their, how their behavior impacts you, they're too emotionally immature. It's like talking to a three-year-old about how their behavior impacts you. Like, it's just not going to work. They're going to have their defenses up. It would be too shaming for them to recognize that actually they've carried out quite bad behavior because that means they're not a perfect person. Which transitions us over to Meghan Markle because we've interviewed Samantha Markle on the channel and she's schooled in psychology and psychiatry and she said that Megan shows the traits of a malignant narcissist. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Well, first of all, it's not fair to diagnose anyone who hasn't opted into an assessment. And, you know, and if they have, you don't kind of disclose that, um, you know, information to other people without people's consent. So, um, so I haven't diagnosed Megan, Mar I haven't assessed Mar Megan Mar Markle, so I can't diagnose her, but her behavior is quite um, hard to empathize with. And the fact that her behavior is hard to empathize with tells me that actually it's very hard for us to find moments where she's showing strong signs of empathy um, for other people. So an example of this is in the Oprah interview when she said Kate made her cry or Oprah said to her, did you make Kate cry? And she said, no, it was the opposite. So basically she just, you know, discloses that actually Kate has made her cry and she knows how the media is. So actually in that moment, it would have been better for her. And she, and she actually doesn't say what the situation was about. So she kind of skirts around it, just says that Kate, made, Kate actually made her cry. But she knows how the media can be. And she knows that in saying Kate made her cry, that the media might turn on Kate. And if you were an empath, you definitely wouldn't do that. You would be quite worried about the impact of your words on other people, and you'd be you'd be more careful about how you say things. So there's difficult. There's just a lot of difficulty finding moments of her being empathic. Um, so that indicates that a lot of her ways of operating are perhaps quite self-centered. Do you think that she has manipulated Harry? Quite possibly. <laughs> I think it looks like it because first of all. Who's going to get get Harry in the first place? It was it was quite a high uh, bar, you know. He's a prince. There's a lot of women that would have wanted to date him or marry him. Um, I think the chances of the only woman being able to get him having to have high traits of narcissism is highly possible because he's you know his his ranking is so high anyway. It has to be a woman who somehow convinces him that she's good enough for him, and I think that Megan has managed to do that. And I think that, um, I think perhaps narcissism or narcissistic traits are required in order to win someone like that over. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that he can't have a healthy relationship, but this is someone who has spoken openly about being very traumatized. And um, 
when we look at what kind of people partner, if someone has experienced a horrific amount of trauma in their life, which Harry has, and luckily he's worked on his mental health and he started, you know, he's taken responsibility for that, which is great. But he is still someone who's suffered to like an extraordinary level, like far, far more than many people because of the position that he was in. So he is probably going to attract someone who has also suffered in in ways in childhood suffered an awful lot and when people have suffered in that way um they carry the trauma and i think perhaps the way the, that megan might carry that trauma is that it it has actually uh, she's developed this this self-image um that is very inflated um in order to to actually deal with the trauma she's she's promoted herself in society in a way that um it's, it's possible she could have a lot of traits of narcissism all right, viewers, we're with Dr. Becky Spellman talking about narcissism. We've used exam the examples of Philip Schofield and Meghan Markle. If anyone's got any questions about any of these subjects, put them in the chat. We've only got about 10 minutes left before the hour is up. Um, also, Becky's channel link is at the top of the description box. There's tons more content on there, including when she interviewed me years ago. It's got almost a quarter million views right now. If you want to check that out. What a life story. What a life story. <laughs> Thank you. Julie Ray, what is the difference between a narcissist and a psychopath? And what are the globalists who appear happy to murder innocent people who enjoy seeing us struggle and suffer? Yeah, so psychopaths don't function as well in society, anywhere near as well in society as narcissists. So you wouldn't see a psychopath turning up to a job every day like Philip Schofield has done and, um, you know, maintaining relationships over a long period of time doesn't really work very well for, for psychopaths. Psychopaths do a lot more a lot more harm than, than narcissists, um, you know, so we really see far worse behaviours. Is there such a thing as a psychopathic narcissist? All psychopaths are narcissists. Oh, all psych. So that's part of being a psychopath. Yeah, it's part of it, but it's but uh, not all narcissists are psychopaths. But not all narcissists. Okay, gotcha. So Fred wants to know when was narcissism first diagnosed? Like when did they when did it they put it in the diagnostic and statistic manual? Yeah, when was it defined? Yeah, I don't know when it was put in the diagnostic and statistic manual, but they update that manual every couple of years, which is really interesting because being gay used to be in that manual until I don't know, 2013 or something. So you know, it's quite crazy. And I think that's why we always have to be skeptical about diagnosis is that actually what's in that manual today, in you know, 20 years time, that manual will actually change. So we haven't got it right, you know, that that manual is only a guide to help people get access to the best treatment. Otherwise, you don't diagnose people. You only diagnose people in order to help them get access to the best quality, most evidence-based treatment. Um, but actually, there's some interesting things in that manual that I certainly don't agree with. And um, a committee meets and then they agree on, you know, actually what should go in that man manual and it gets updated all the time, which is why Asperger's is no longer a condition in that manual. They've now changed it to autism spectrum disorder. So um, it gets updated all the time, but then people don't get updated and they're still kind of sometimes using old content that no longer exists. Fred wants to know if narcissism is unavoidable after severe neglect. 
Oh, no, absolutely. You can completely avoid it. Um, I mean, I've seen so many clients where they've had horrific severe neglect. I work with a lot of dissociative identity disorder, which is the disorder that used to be called multiple personality disorder until they changed it in that manual that I mentioned. And um, and loads of those, those people have loads of empathy and, you know, are definitely definitely not many many of them are not narcissists and there's loads of other people who don't have this disorder and they have severe trauma in childhood and there's there's they don't become narcissists um so um no it's a small you know it's it's a percentage of people it's it's um there's more to it than just having childhood emotional neglect or um or horrific things happening in childhood in order to develop narcissism there's a there's an innate personality element to it also my experience of two malignant narcissists is that they enjoy hurting others. It seems to give them a feeling of power. Do you agree? Um, I don't agree that narcissists um, enjoy hurting other people, but I do agree that they like to have control. They like to be in control of situations and interpersonal relationships, and they like to be in control most of the time with every situation in their life. They really don't like to feel out of control, and they like to feel powerful but are all narcissists going around hurting people um no actually a lot of them have enough insight to know the harm that they can do and they bring themselves in so kitty what kind of trauma creates a narcissist i'm thinking of Meghan markle um there is a few things in childhood that people really need so they need their emotions to be attended to um they need their physical needs to be met um they you know they need to to be taken care of and um they need to be kept away from violence um they need to be kept away from abuse so um you know if if these ingredients are not present then you end up with a child who has not experienced an ideal childhood and um and any of those missing ingredients could lead to someone being a narcissist um you also have you know confusing kind of parenting um experienced a lot of praise uh, being totally elevated and experienced a lot of praise, um, and then uh, but then actually neglected in other ways. So there's sometimes very inconsistent parenting where um, where people are you know ex- they receive excessive amounts of praise, but there's also emotional neglect there. So um, there might be you know that kind of upbringing can often lead, lead someone to have this grandiose idea of themselves because they've been told they're amazing in childhood, but then actually their emotions haven't been attended to at all. And there might be other abuse um, that's been present. Question from Shanti. Philip's relationship with his wife would be domestic violence as he needs to control her not leaving due to no action in the bedroom. I think he just wants... That's a, a an assumption. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's um, quite a big an assumption. There's, we don't have any evidence of violence in that relationship. Um, not that I've heard of. Is he ref- intimating coercive control? Um well like we don't i don't have any evidence of coercive control because there's not very much information that i've seen about that relationship um you know so um it's highly manipulative to be gay and enter a relationship with a woman and pretend that you're not gay you know that's highly manipulative and you know devastating and highly traumatic for someone is it coercive control um, you need to really look at the behaviours in the relationship to see if there was coercive control there, because that's a different type of abuse that can happen and um, it involves different types of behaviours. What I found 
disturbing was when he did his apology videos. His biggest apology was to the runner and not to his wife and kids. I thought that was weird. Yeah, I don't think he really considers his his wife's emotions at all. Otherwise, he wouldn't enter in, into a marriage with her under false pretenses. Um, also, I don't think he considered his wife's emotions at all when he came out as gay. Um, and, you know, by the looks of it, he came out as gay in order to try and save himself. And that was a very selfish act. Um, so, you know, it's and his wife has obviously stayed silent in all of this. Um, it must be extremely traumatic for her. And I imagine she's in really struggling psychologically as a result of this because she's had to question her whole reality. In excess, has Becky been personally involved in a relationship with a narcissist? I, I would ask, um, I mean, can we turn this into a two-way conversation? I would ask, what, why are you curious about that? Or what makes you want to know the answer to that question? I think perhaps um, I watched the video of Richard Grant, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but when he was a young man, he was in a relationship with a narcissist for three years, and he said it took him three years to recover and I think it's it's um, it, it was a fascinating story that you told that went viral. So perhaps um, that question could have come come on the back of that, something like that. Well, there's, yeah, there's no fascinating story that I can tell that will go viral right now at this moment. <laughs> but um, I I have dated people who have low empathy, but I don't, you know, I haven't dated them for a significant period of time because I wouldn't find that relationship very satisfying, and I. I think it's very important for my emotions to be attended to so um so yeah no romantic relationships with narcissists um when i've dated i've definitely met people and it's quite obvious that they're narcissists but i stay away from those kind of people um but you know i think it, it, it it's very interesting these you know situations in life to reflect on or reflect on you know with dating experiences you meet a lot of different types of people and um and I think for anyone who's single and putting them out, putting themselves out there in the dating field, they will meet a lot of narcissists because sadly, there's a lot of low empathy people in this world. And actually, from an evolutionary perspective, we need a lot of narcissists because if we had if the world was full of sensitive souls, um, you know, there's advantages actually to um to people uh, being more self-centered, because actually in, in times of crisis, we're seeing different people take different roles you know the empaths look after people then the people who are more self-centered can be they can not necessarily be so emotionally affected and then they can get things done so actually there might be some advantages to having so many narcissists because we have a lot of them so you know the world doesn't necessarily need all empaths although it's sad that we don't have more Story from Alphabet. I was a narcissist in a relationship. It took me 15 years to realize and change. I had trauma from seven years old. Um, a lot to deal with. Um, story over. Does time temper narcissism, Becky? Well, first of all, thanks um, to the person who shared this comment. What I would say about your comment is that you probably acted very self-centered in that relationship. And... Um, you know, I guess what this person is saying is they recovered from being a narcissist, but actually I would say they probably had capacity for empathy in the first place. And they just decided, you know, over time, develop more empathy and um, became less, less self-centered. So I would kind of question how narcissistic this person was in the first place, probably definitely nowhere near meeting the full diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and what was your what was your question, Sean? Does time temper narcissism? Um 
narcissists don't really change. Um, they can improve their behaviors and they can recognize how much harm their behaviors can cause to people and they can rein that in. But do they become highly empathic people? We don't tend to see that, sadly. And there was a follow-up question from Alphabet. Um, where did Becky learn all her education and specialize in this matter? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I have five degrees in psychology, one, wow. one, being, yeah, few, <laughs> one being a doctorate. But actually, I would say most of my um, learning was actually in clinical practice and, and life experience as well. Uh, you learn a lot about people when you're a psychologist, if you're interested in, in listening. And I think that's the key is really listening to people and really hearing their story and hearing their pain. Uh, so that you can understand people and and that's why I have so much empathy for narcissists as I I know how much pain they experience Ian does it explain why many celebs are quite cold empty people okay so with celebs we have um, a high percentage of people that seek fame now we have lots of celebs who work very hard and they receive fame from hard work and they you know kind of have earned fame through talent um, but actually fame-seeking people who are just hungry to be recognized, hungry to be validated, are people who tend to have been neglected in childhood. They weren't seen in childhood. They weren't recognized in childhood. And sadly, actually, if you survey, there is research on this, um, uh, narcissists, um, if you survey celebrities, there is a higher percentage of celebrities are narcissists than the normal population. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Becky, but we've run out of time. So a huge thank you for doing this this evening. Please, everyone, there's way loads more content on Becky's channel. The link is at the top of the description box. Also, I've put the link in there for when Becky interviewed me years ago. Um, right. Check that one out. So there's the Instagram and there's also the website. And if people want to come and get therapy, what would they do? So if people want to have therapy, I own a clinic. I founded a clinic 12 years ago, which is called Private Therapy Clinic. We have 50 practitioners who specialize in absolutely everything. So we're a one-stop shop for therapy needs. Um, we treat every type of condition. We have a psychiatry as well, if people do need to be considered for medication. Um, but they're really an incredible team that I work very closely with. And... Um, yeah, if people are considering seeking help in that way, we can we definitely have a chat with them. Therapy might not necessarily be the answer for everyone. It's not the only type of way that you can look after your mental health. Um, so I'm not going to say just because I own a therapy and psychiatry clinic, everyone should have therapy. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it's you know, but it's one way that people can seek support. So we'd be happy to talk to anyone who um, who wants to get in touch with us. And the link for the clinic is also in the description box. So thanks everybody for watching. If, you, if you've been with us for four plus hours tonight, we really appreciate that. Take care out there wherever you are in the world. And huge thank you to Becky for coming on. And I'm looking forward, hopefully, to doing something more of us soon. So cheers, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sean.